Welcome back to Homestuck Made This World, the show about the critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic Homestuck. I'm Michael, and with me is my dedicated co-host, Cameron. Yep. So dedicated, you can hear it in his voice. I'm here. Yeah. Uh, how you doing, Cameron? Um, Hanging out in my big green palace. Cool, cool. Being some sort of meta character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fits nicely with this episode six, part three of Homestuck Made This World, in which we continue the Doc Scratch intermission. This is a word that sometimes gets used to describe it. Uh, some people also call it an interlude. I don't know. But I think the the big green meta character part is also something that works. Mm-hmm. Now, when's the Hulk going to show up? Um... I can't tell you about that. Is he like a wizard of muscles mm-hmm. or something? Yeah. Some sort of wizard of muscles. <laughs> sure. Let's just got Doctor Strange, uh Gremlin of Space, uh uh Captain America, uh arms of lengthiness. <laughs> Captain America's extremely famous superpower of having long arms. Yeah, of course. Oh, wait, hold on. Give me, give me two seconds. I gotta get up. I'll be right back. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Are you there? Yep. You can leave this in the episode if you want to. So, uh, I've had a saga the past few days mm-hmm. with some birds. Mm. Okay. So we, we got some Carolina wrens mm-hmm. live uh, right outside my office window. Mm-hmm. Okay. Other day, I hear all the screeching, screaming, mm-hmm. hooting and hollering. They're going, weep, 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 weep. Mm-hmm. Okay? Ca-ca, motherfuckers, I, and so on. Yes, exactly. I go out there. Actually, I look out the window. Bunch of babies falling out of a nest somewhere. Uh-oh. They're the size of golf balls. They're little gremlin-looking dudes. They got awful heads of hair. You know, they, <laughs> they look stupid. Uh-huh. And I think, oh, no, these things are going to get murdered. So I go out there. I, with a with a box, I go and try to gather them all up as best I can. I put them back in the tree. They scoot up the tree. Do, 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 do. They disappear. It's like three of them. Okay. Bird saved. I, like a day later, I look outside. Underneath a drain pipe between my house and my neighbor's house, all the baby birds are cuddled up underneath it. They're barely moving. I think, oh no, these birds are dead. Mm-hmm. How sad. I'm going to have to go deal with that before my wife gets home. Because she's going to, my very brave wife. Because she will not like that. Mm-hmm. Okay? I, and then, shortly after I discover that, I hear all the birds screeching, screaming. Wee, 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 wee. We're making alive! All this, We're alive! Well, no, not those. Oh. I hear the, the adult birds. And they're doing their fighting noise, which I hear all the time. Because I like to fight with the cardinals, all these other birds outside. Uh, so I look out the window, there's a, the, we have a stray cat in the neighborhood, like a little feral cat. It's out there. I got to go out there, scare this cat away. So I go, whoa, 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 get out of here. Shoot, shoot, shoot. Cat goes away. I see the little baby birds. They're not moving at all. And I think, oh no. And I think, well, I, maybe I'll just like clean this up right now while I'm out here. Mm-hmm. I get close to them. They are not dead which I feared. They're just extremely still because of predators. Mm-hmm. They explode out in every direction. <laughs> so these baby birds are, they're everywhere. They're, they're scraping. They, they end up going like down in a hole. 
I have to get one out of a hole. They, they have to like, one gets out in my like garden beds. I got to shoo it back and they like can barely fly. So I'm like walking behind it with my arms outstretched with like gloves on mm-hmm. that are yellow to clearly different. Like I'm like, it's like the tiniest plane on the planet that I'm moving into mm-hmm. to port. Mm-hmm. I, I get it back. They all get in this like li- these vines and this ivy. So they're all hidden. And then I don't hear from them for three days. Mm-hmm. And I thought again, oh my gosh, you know, I haven't seen the parents. And I thought, oh my gosh, they're all dead. All these birds are dead. And then this morning, normally you can hear them in the morning. You can hear the parents, nothing. And I thought, oh, they've like abandoned them, gone somewhere else. How sad. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, as soon as I sat down to record this episode, <laughs> I heard beep, 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 beep. And I went out and it's these fat little goblins flying around, following their parents around, learning how to eat. Because that's what they do. Mm-hmm. Do it so, it, and I saw at least one, and I can hear a couple other ones. So they have here to report they have survived. It's all good, mm-hmm. and that uh, this drama of birds up and down my relationship to them more interesting to me than Homestuck. Oh, woo! Well, I got them. I'm, I'm glad that you uh, saved all the birds and preserved the Alpha timeline in which no birds die. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> now, now there is a big version of me flying around with a big bird. Uh huh. Uh, with the big stupid hair I was talking about, yeah. you think that's a problem? Or no, that's pretty normal. I think. Okay. Yeah, if we yeah. if we don't have several versions of yourself with like various animal parts attached by the time that we're done, then we haven't really read Homestuck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I guess you probably want to get into the uh, the summary of whatever we're talking about today, which I promise is not as cool as what I just said. <laughs> we'll be the judge of that. That's me taking the voice of the listeners. And I'm talking for mm-hmm. them and being extremely mm-hmm. accurate in my reportage. Wow. Mm-hmm. You're being so accurate right now. <laughs> Thanks. It's one of the perks of omniscience. Mm. <clears throat> so the summary for episode six, part three. As Doc Scratch heads off to investigate the noise in his apartment, we continue to sort through Homestuck clippings. On the battlefield, Nana Sprite uses Dad's PDA to chat with one of his fellow serious businessmen, relating the tale of a young girl and boy who fell from space and were raised by a genteel southern comedian. While the girl and boy felt they were destined to be together, they were unfortunately split apart by their wicked stepmother, a baked goods baroness who disappeared mysteriously before the girl, a young Nana could reveal her inhuman nature to the world. Elsewhere, Dave Sprite explains to Jade Sprite that his denizen was not entirely hostile, and posed to him a strange riddle called The Choice when encountered in the Doom timeline, but Dave fled. After becoming Dave Sprite, he returned and was offered another choice, this time for the denizen to fix something. Dave Sprite elected to fix Dave's sword to help him out, and Jade Sprite wishes there was some way she could help Jade as well. In the dream bubbles, Vriska listens as the dead John recollects his encounter with his denizen, Typhius. Surprising Vriska, who like all the trolls, simply powered through the battles with their denizens instead of speaking to them, John actually seems to be on pretty good terms with Typhius. John says he understands that if he had not died when and how he did, Dave would have never traveled back in time to fix things and preserve the Alpha timeline, ensuring they all existed to begin with. On Jade's planet, Jade returns from a meeting with her denizen, Echidna. 
She works with Karkat and Kanaya to add the finishing touches to the kid's Genesis tadpole, using a tip from Echidna to find a critical frog for the new universe's quote-unquote genetic code. In return for this help, however, Echidna has asked for something apparently impossible. Jade must somehow find a way to take the battlefield and all the kids' planets with them into the post-scratch session. As Purpo's moon drifts through the outer ring, Dave's dream self protests Rose's decision to complete the suicide mission alone. They are interrupted by the draconian dignitary who's come to assassinate Rose. On Purpo proper, Dave wakes up and flies into the furthest ring to help. The courtyard droll contacts Jack Noir to report the successful theft of Dad's wallet from WV, completely forgetting that the mission he was charged with was to assassinate Jade. An enraged Jack Noir attacks WV's battleship, sending it careening through a sky and defense portal into the surface of the post-apocalyptic Earth. On Alternia, before the trolls started their game, Gamzee and Tavros engage in a playful rap battle before Gamzee makes a frank romantic overture to an astonished Tavros. In the furthest ring, Aradio waits near the green sun, where she is joined by a dream bubble ghost of Sullux, who is only half dead because of his bifurcation gimmick. Near the end of the trolls' timeline, after the start of Gamzee's murder spree, Karkat messages Jade to tell her goodbye. He admits to a mistake he is now sure he has made. When creating the universe, he rushed Kanaya through the process and didn't collect all the necessary genetic codes. The result was an ill-looking Genesis frog, with a massive tumor on its chin. Karkat apologizes for giving the universe cancer, which he believes has taken the embodied form of the game-breaking character Jack Noir. And in the Trolls' session, Jack Noir readies his Red Miles attack to destroy from the outside the sick Genesis Frog, an act whose cataclysmic effects now descend from the far future Earth sky above PM and the other exiles. In the past, Dave is trolled by Gamzee, who is furious over the blasphemies of the Insane Clown Posse's Miracles music video, which we learn Dave received early access to from a sinister Betty Crocker social media account. In retribution for revealing the falsity of his religion's apocalyptic vast honk, Gamzee used his evil clown powers to ruin the kids' session, manifesting in John's Prospect Dream Tower a horrible Harlequin doll modeled on Jack Noir, birthing John's unconscious terror of clowns and Dad's misguided embrace of them, which of course, to spell this all out, led to the prototyping of John's sprite with a Harlequin doll and thereby causing the rise of Jack Noir to begin with. Gamzee reserved something special for Dave, too, making his nightmares come true by using more evil clown power to manifest the original dream cow that haunted Dave's bedroom on Purpo, and which eventually became the actual Lil' Cal Gamzee now has. He says it talks to him. Doc Scratch finally reaches a locked room from which a banging sound emanates. It is a chair being smashed against the narrative's fifth wall, beyond which Andrew Hussey has arranged two fourth walls, the one earlier draped with Lord English's overcoat, and a new one, to face each other precisely one yard apart. Doc deactivates the fifth wall and chastises his prisoner, a young troll girl who looks an awful lot like a radia. They engage in a strife, during which Doc Scratch beats her severely and then begins a round of re-education to remind her of the important work for which she is, in his terms, being groomed. As he begins his story, the young troll discreetly flips on the fifth wall again, drawing the attention of Andrew Hussey.
Doc reveals that once upon a time, Alternia was a very different place. Troll society was peaceful and kind, for it had never known the malign influence of Doc Scratch himself. How that came to be was this. Twelve trolls from a peaceful world played an apocalyptic game, but weren't, Doc says, adequately prepared by their upbringings to win. However, their session was also marked by a glitch wherein these trolls did not create themselves via ectobiology, but had in fact spawned in another session, a session they were destined to create. This causal glitch, Doc says, is one of his master's calling cards. At their moment of failure, these trolls reset their session with a scratch, with the promise that the new session would provide a society that trained children for the mastery and completion of the game. As part of the bargain, however, the original trolls were erased from existence and recast in the new reality, not as players of the game, but as heroes of legend, while their own former predecessors became the players destined to face the game's challenges. Living their new lives as the ancestors of the trolls we already know, these former players lost all memory of their prior world. All except one. He was the signless, Karkat's ancestor, also known as the Sufferer. Early in Alternia's vicious new history, the Signless was troubled by inexplicable memories of a kinder world and began to preach the virtues of compassion, which of course marked him for death. By then, he had already acquired a group of devoted followers, the Dolorosa, a rogue jade blood in Kanaya's ancestor who raised him from grubhood, as well as the Psionic, Solix's ancestor and a powerful telekinetic mage, not to mention the Disciple, Nepeta's ancestor and the Sufferer's scribe and lover. When the Sufferer was finally executed by the state, the Dolorosa was sold into slavery, and the Psionic was imprisoned by the Troll Empress and Feferi's ancestor, her imperious condescension, also known as the Condess, who used her vast powers to extend his lifespan and incorporate him and his telekinesis into the engine of her personal warship, which resembles nothing so much as a vicious red trident or fork. The Disciple fled into the wilderness and preserved the Sufferer's teachings, forming a shadowy cult that worked to ensure the Signless's descendant would have a safe haven when the time came for the game to begin again. They succeeded, and when Glub Glub, a gift from Doc Scratch to the Condess to help ensure her ironclad rule, admitted the vast Glub, in a matter of seconds, the mighty troll empire was destroyed, leaving only the Condess herself and Feferi. Without the Psionic to power her ship, the Condess has spent centuries on a return journey to post-apocalyptic Alternia, and is due to arrive any moment now. At which point, Doc says, she will meet Aradia's ancestor, who, along with us, is listening to this story. See, Aradia's ancestor arrived after the apocalypse and has been in Doc Scratch's care ever since. He has raised her to become the Handmaid, Lord English's emissary who has already time-traveled throughout Alternia's history to wreak violence and mayhem. When the Condess arrives, the adult Handmaid will greet her and offer an employment opportunity, become Lord English's new agent, do his work in realities he cannot reach, and let the Handmaid finally die. This is the end the small troll girl can expect for herself.
Meanwhile, Andrew Hussey smashes through the fifth wall into Doc's apartment, and throughout all of this has bumbled through the banner panels at the top of the MS Paint Adventures website, hoping to find Doc Scratch and make him stop delivering Ancestor Exposition. But when Hussey finally makes his move, grabbing Doc Scratch by the shoulders and shaking him violently, Scratch goes weirdly limp, like a doll, while Aradia's Ancestor makes a run for it. Hussey is weirded out by the now inert Scratch, from whose body is recovered the repaired second disc of Homestuck, and Hussey resumes control of the narrative. However, as the young handmaid flees through the banner panels, she is addressed by massive green text informing her that she cannot hope to escape. Indeed, in trying to flee, she runs straight into a towering figure with rapidly alternating pool ball eyes, and through an explosion of flashing, multicolored text that obscures most of the MSPA website, Lord English informs her what we've known for some time, that he is already here. After a brief detour in a Sweet Bro and Hella Jeff reskin of the website, the second disc of Homestuck loads, returning us to the top of the Trolls Meteor, where Karkat, Terezi, Kanaya, Sullux, and Gamzee engage in their final climactic standoff. Karkat presses the others to stand down, and then leaps into the fray, calming the murderous, enraged Gamzee by gently patting him on the face, shoulders, and chest, while softly going shoosh over and over. Gamzee calms down, and he and Karkat embrace as Moirails, to the delight of Andrew Hussey, who has returned home and now affixes this panel into Doc Scratch's scrapbook. Hussey begins to write another plot recap, but gives up, because I guess some people just aren't cut out for this. Hussey now puts the comic on hiatus for two months to work on the end of Act 5 animation, and for that entire time, we stare at a panel showing Jade at the top of her house, Genesis Tadpole, and Jack Noir nearby as the effects of the scratch tear through the sky above. Shoosh. 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 Pap. 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 Pap shoosh, 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 pap. Yeah, so that happened. Yeah, what's going on with shoosh and pap? <laughs> I mean, what do you mean what's going on with them? Why uh, Why does that work to, to calm the, the freakish juggler? Um, I mean, that's a great question. I suppose the answer is uh, because that's what happened for the story to proceed as Andrew Hussey wanted it to. Right. Um, there is, you know, yep. You, you know what? You got me. There. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so like a, a, one of the things that you wouldn't know if you're not reading along with this is that there have been uh, like one of the, the kind of like recurring gags of Homestuck that just, you know, isn't something that we're talking about here are uh, kind of weird onomatopoeia that show up in panels uh, that are just like so uh, uh, there's a when characters walk sometimes, right, like they get the onomatopoeia in the panel of like Pap showing like, uh, you know, soft footsteps or something. Uh, there's also, I think, been a, a, a shoosh earlier on. Um, but in general, uh, how this weird Pap shoosh thing with Gamzee reads 
uh, has a couple of dimensions to it. I think one is, uh, you know, the the culmination of these little onomatopoeia that finally, like, you know, the this thing has, sh- like, uh, a classic Homestuck move, this thing that you've seen before is showing up again in a slightly different context isn't that kind of amusing or funny, right? Aren't you surprised by this kind of reoccurrence? Um, the other thing that this is, is that this is a, a kind of, like, masterpiece of what I have called previously the deflationary move that Homestuck does constantly, where it builds up to kind of a big climactic moment or expectation or confrontation, uh, and then just has a total anticlimax as its payoff. Um, I, I would say that I think Hussey thinks these things are funny in and of themselves, regardless of whether or not they work as a narrative device in their particular moment. So here we have uh, Gamzee, the evil clown power murder juggalo, who's just like effortlessly dispatched all these other people, right? He's kind of unstoppable. Uh, he gets stopped uh, because it would be funny if wh- how he was stopped is if Carcat just like calmed him down because, hey, remember, troll culture has this whole like more allegiance thing where two trolls of different differing tendencies kind of balance each other out. So what if what if that came back into play here? Right. Uh, what if we had that little moment of Carcat uh, kind of taking his responsibility uh, for feeling like he's a bad friend uh, toward Gamzee, which is a conversation that he's had. Uh, he had that with John, I think, in our previous reading where he says something like, I guess whoever I, whoever is my best friend is the person who I'm talking to the most at that moment or something. I can't remember exactly how he <laughs> phrases it. Um, but anyway, right? Like, you want to know what's up with uh, uh, Pap Shush? Well, well, there you go. I've given you a couple of ways of thinking about it. <laughs> Pap Shush. Pap, Pap, Pap. Pap-shush and honk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and pap-shush and honk to you as well. <laughs> <laughs> I tip my hat yeah. to thee. Pap-shush and honk. Uh, <laughs> I like that that was your main question. Is like, all of this stuff happens, and you're like, what's up with the pap-shush? Well, I will say, this is not something I'm going to say in the next part of episode, even a little bit. What happens in this part of episode is fairly clear. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, that's not that's not a thing I feel most uh-huh. of the time in this on the show. That the thing that happened, you know, is is clear and makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet it kind of is clear and makes sense. Uh sorry, I'm I'm moving to uh a, a jump into a page. Um but uh but yeah, I don't know. What I what do you want to talk about? I feel like you got stuff you wanna you know. Oh, talk about yeah well uh to think about what uh you know historical michael is really interested in uh during this moment uh i'm really interested in the first kind of real glimpse of lord english and the way that that happens uh even as and this actually builds on you know some stuff that i talked about in the last part episode about sort of like playing uh narrators off of each other um, you know, little historical Michael reading his Bakhtin, thinking these thoughts, and then wouldn't wouldn't you know it, uh, the thing that he's reading starts literally playing the narrators against each other, as we have uh, Doc Scratch, who has, like, commandeered things, quote-unquote, and is now, like, mm-hmm. delivering all of this ancestor exposition, uh, which, if again, if you're not reading, if all you have to go on is my summary, is truly just pages and pages of uh, long digressions into kind of alternative in history uh and then hussy 
the character hussy who shows up in in the uh, banner panels at the top uh, jumps through the fifth wall into kind of Doc Scratch's apartment and then uh, walks around the apartment uh, searching out Doc Scratch and you can hover your uh, cursor over the banner mm-hmm. panels and get alt text, uh, you know, which is uh, intended to be like a, a, a description of an image for a screen reader. Uh, but Hussy puts in the alt text uh, like dialogue for the Hussy character. And it becomes straight up just a, a, a panto, uh, as we talked about on uh, the episode of Game Study Study Buddies on, oh gosh, what's that book called about um, children's play and digital play? Uh, the Seth Giddings book? Yes, the Seth Giddings book. I'm blanking on the title. Yes, but, uh, but uh, it becomes kind of that sort of thing, right? Children's play, literally like Dora the Explorer, right? Because mm-hmm. Hussey's character, it says, like one of the things Hussey's character says is like, uh, oh, you know, oh, which way did he go? Help me out, guys, right? Addressing the audience as if there were a, a point for audience input there that actually mattered rather than the Dora Explorer uh uh, situation of just screaming at your television screen. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, this is happening, and the the hussy character in the banner panels is also kind of complaining about Doc Scratch and like uh, uh, making explicit certain things, like uh, uh, Doc Scratch as kind of a exaggeration of certain typically hussian narrative characteristics. Uh, like the the tendency to act as if you already know everything and to kind of like talk a lot about a fairly specific or pointed question uh, going off on tangents about things that don't necessarily seem to matter. Hussey is saying that like Scratch is like mocking them uh, and, and sort of making a mess of the story. So I love this, right? I, I think this is great uh, because... Uh, it allows, well, it does the same thing, actually, that uh, way back when I first talked about heteroglossia in this comic, it was about um, an early racist joke uh, around, like, the Colonel Sassaker volume, and how that, the way that the character voices get opposed to each other allows Hussey to kind of, like, make that joke, but then have a character critique that joke. So you get, Mm -hmm. uh, I think the way you put it was kind of like getting up to the line. Uh, so we, we've got this kind of same dynamic here where we get like Hussey, the character who doesn't want all of this ancestor exposition clogging up their comic, uh, versus this, uh, opposing narrator who is delivering as much ancestor exposition as you could possibly imagine, right? At length for pages of it. Uh, and so we get to preserve kind of this weird feeling of, um, you know, what is this comic, right? Fundamentally, at the end of the day, like, what is this thing that all of us readers are interacting with? Or like, what are we here for? Uh, Some of us are here for the ancestors. Uh, Hussey says this uh, pretty extensively in the book commentary. And um, it's very clear if you're looking at Tumblr posts from this time period, uh, people like when when the idea of the ancestors dropped, people got really into it. Like there were there was like ancestor speculation, people were like, Oh, what about the ancestors for all of the trolls that we haven't seen yet uh so it becomes another kind of moment where uh uh like audience the, the audience's imagination reacts in a certain way that then seems to encourage hussy to kind of within the text of the story uh lean into that to give the people what they want to start kind of filling in the blank spaces in the narrative and at the same mm-hmm. time the structure of the narrative preserves this ambivalence where uh it's not hussy right who is really giving it to uh the fans right it is this kind of weird 
uh, alternative author whose motivations can't be trusted, which isn't to say that, like, you know, all of the ancestor stuff is like, uh, uh, like, I don't know, in some way a distortion or like distracting, even though it is like it is it is a way of uh, justifying a digression, but also kind of like marking it stylistically or ironically as like, yeah, here's a here's a bad uh, digression in this story that kills the momentum. And I, as the author, know this. And in order to kind of like uh, uh, in the TV tropes uh, language, right, to lampshade this problem, I'm going to have these two narrators uh, kind of opposing each other. So all of this is happening. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we have like the incredible moment where Hussey tries to take out Doc Scratch and Doc Scratch just like goes limp. And I think the, uh, in, in the comic, right, the Hussey character says uh, it's like some sort of reverse Calvin and Hobbes thing where whenever Hussey is around, Scratch is just like a, a, a stuffed doll. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have kind of that moment and it's like, oh, huh, that's that's interesting. Then Aradia runs away, uh, or rather Aradia's ancestor, I should say. Um, she goes up into the banner panels, and then the alt text gag comes back, except it's not a gag anymore. Uh, now it's not just when you hover your uh, cursor over the panel, you get like the little caption. Uh, you actually get an image that pops up of like these like giant green blocky text, uh, and it's uh, repeating or sort of like uh, uh, doing a callback to the exile commands that WV uh, first sent John after he entered the medium. Because WV said something like, you know, uh, boy, you there, boy, quit all this scurrying around. And so now we have just in giant green text, girl, you there, girl, quit all this scurrying around. Uh, you can't expect to outrun me. And this happens over a progression of pages until Aradia's ancestor runs into some sort of flashing thing out of out of the frame, right? Out of the panel, mm-hmm. looking up in fear. And then we see these pool ball eyes flashing and alternating. And the giant, uh, huge text that takes up half of the screen uh, saying, you know, you can't, ex- how do you expect to escape me? And then the payoff, sort of the punchline is when I am already here. Uh, and... One, this is a cool effect. I like how this how this works. I like how it uh, carries through kind of how is this comic working with its meta elements, right? By having these kind of narrative or narratorial characters run around and spar with each other. Uh, but then it presents Lord English, right? Like as kind of the, the this character who's been whispered about and speculated about. And some of the stuff I want to talk about later on in this episode is some Lord English speculation. So I'm saying that to remind myself. Uh, but people have been like, you know, who is Lord English? Like what's going on with Lord English? And I've said this, that my historical kind of interest was kind of in this question of English and what was going on there. Um, and how it sort of works then, or at least the reading that I come up with, uh, is that, uh, you know, Lord English becomes the, this kind of character who circumvents or like can rise above both of the narrator characters that we've got thus far. So as, uh, Scratch and Hussey can both kind of take control of the narrative itself and kind of like uh, what their speech can be the text of the narrative that you are reading below the panel. Uh, we have Hussey coming in through the banners, talking through the captions, the alt text captions. Um, and then we have Lord English as a thing that is sort of even above that, right? As a uh, kind of... Uh, 
like taking the same principle, but like expanding it outward. It's not just the caption. It is like this specific bespoke image. It is flashing. It is colorful. Uh, it is uh, taking advantage of the affordances of a website in a way that uh, Homestuck has been doing sort of all along, but is really kind of accelerated during this scratch and in, uh, intermission. Um, and so like the, the kind of idea that strikes me here is that like, oh, Lord English is the website. Hmm. Like, what is Lord English if Lord English is being marked as the narrator who has all of the flashing text, all of these cool gadgets and gigas at his disposal? Um, like, Lord English, for, for me, right, historically reading, becomes kind of this way of thinking about, like, if, if Andrew Hussey, the, char uh, the character, is reasonably close in some sense to, like, Andrew Hussey, the actual author, right? What is Andrew Hussey, the author, trying to get me to think about, wonders historical Michael, by having uh, this kind of, like, uh, more realistic but buffoonish version of themselves in the story that is in some way uh, ignorant of or, like, you know, not exactly... Uh, can... Hussey is not coming out and picking up Lord English, right? Uh, uh, mm -hmm. in, in the way that Scratch and Hussey have been pitted against each other, Lord English is like this third term. So, like, what is that third term? What is the thing that could undergird both Hussey and Doc Scratch? I mean, it's, it's again, it's the website. Uh, it is the, the sort of, like, specific form of the story and the way that it is being told uh, and the effects that that thing can work on you. Yeah... <laughs> I I mean I I find that compelling. You know, and then the whole narrative of uh you know, he's already here. Right. You know, because of what we're looking at that is definitely definitionally the case. Yeah, I I asked about this a couple of episodes ago and it was coming off of uh a our reading of the never-ending story. Um, which we had the mm -hmm. bonus out on. And in that particular bonus episode, I talked about uh, the way that uh, the character of Zaide shows up as uh, a, uh, she's this woman, the sorceress, who has alternating uh, flashing uh, red and green eyes. And uh, she ends up like, uh, or, or, like one of her, her sort of power is like uh, mechanicity. She builds robots that kind of seem to move on their own. Uh, and one of the questions or like one of the observations that I made about her is that because of her kind of association with mechanism and materiality, but also because she has these like almost hypnotic eyes of flashing uh, red and green, uh, mm -hmm. It seemed to me that in some way, uh, Enda, the, the author of Neverending Story, uh, was trying to make the book feel a little bit self-critical because the Neverending Story, the book, uh, is printed in red and green text and sort of uh, depending on what color of text you're reading, you're at a different point in the story. Uh, and how I read that was kind of Enda uh, maybe trying to get the, the, the young reader to understand that, like, listen, this is all mechanism. It's all kind of a, uh, a story that is being told to you, and you can't let these things uh, seduce you or distract you from the fact that they are just mechanisms, that they are just kind of machines, and that the true power lies in you and in your imagination, right? That's how I would read Enda. Um I think it's just wow, cool robot. It might be, yeah, wow, cool robot. Wow, wow, cool robot army. 
Um, but uh, obviously that reading of, of Inda is in some way influenced by a reading that I've already developed of Homestuck since I read this first. Um, and uh, the reading of Homestuck that I have, uh, I guess maybe I should, you know, just sort of explain this a little bit. Like, what do I mean when I say an object is self-defeating? Because I think uh, I this is a question that I have dwelled on for so long and have such specific opinions about that uh, I can sometimes forget that, like, other people don't have these particular fixations as I do and may not understand what what I'm trying to get at. Um, so when I think of objects being self-defeating, I don't mean that as like, oh, this object is self-defeating and therefore it's bad or like it's badly made. Right. Um I think it's an interesting kind of aesthetic problem of what happens when media objects uh, try to be sort of autocritical or self-critical. And some of this comes out of my training uh, in my PhD program, uh, where I focused specifically on uh, English drama of the 16th and 17th centuries. I swear to God, I promise I'm going to try to keep this as brief as I can. Everybody settle um, in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, help yourself to uh, some of the candy I've put in the bowl for you. Um, but uh, a fascinating thing about drama of this time period, which is like Shakespearean drama, right? If you're not into like how the uh, literary academy periodizes itself, like I'm, I, I specialize in the work of Shakespeare and kind of his contemporaries. Um, a thing that is not extremely obvious to us reading these stories in the present day is how weirdly meta they can be uh, about the theater in their moment of kind of practice. So for example, um, at the end of King Lear, uh, King Lear, uh, spoilers, unfortunately, uh, meets with a great personal tragedy as his entire kingdom dissolves and his favored daughter Cordelia dies. And he uh, it has he goes mad, right? And that's the language of the play. He goes mad. He completely sort of loses himself. Um, he walks onto stage, like holding his daughter's corpse, Cordelia's corpse, uh, and he, you know, has her down. And he he uh, enters a moment where he like refuses to believe that she is dead. And he keeps saying to the other characters on stage, like, no, she has she has life. Look at her. She has life. Like, hold a hold a mirror to her mouth and you'll see it fog like you can see her breathing. And everyone else around him is thinking like, oh, man, like, you know, King Lear's totally lost it. What people uh, like what people might not realize in the present moment, but like what people in my line of work think about a lot there is a, a sort of school of reading that says that when King Lear points at Cordelia's corpse and says, look at her, she's breathing, uh, of course she's breathing, because the actor isn't dead. And so, uh, for a moment, uh, what happens is, like, you don't know as the audience, because you can see the actor breathing too, you don't know what's happening on the stage. Because this is the other important thing, is that in the original King Lear story, Cordelia doesn't die. That's a change that Shakespeare makes. So the audience who would know the King Lear legend would expect her to be leaving or to be living. Um, and then there's this weird thing that happens where like the scene of annunciation in theatrical performance um, 
warps or like plays with the audience's imaginative expectations. And this happens in all sorts of plays by all uh, writers from this time period. For example, in uh, The White Devil by John Webster, there's a scene where uh, a character gets, uh, he gives these two other characters some guns because they're like coming up with a plan together. But what he uh, allegedly doesn't know is that the other two characters are planning on double crossing him. So he gives them some guns and he's like, here, use these guns. We'll like be a part of our little escape plan and things will be gravy. And then later on, when he walks in and they double cross him, they pull out their guns and they shoot him and he falls down dead. And they're like, yes, finally, we've achieved our plan. Now it's time to, uh, you know, go do whatever it is we need to do. And then he stands up. And he says, you fools, I knew you were going to double cross me, which is why I gave you some prop guns from the theater. And uh, the audience gets put into this moment of like realizing, oh, like I assumed that those guns were real, but of course they were guns from the theater because this is all fabrication. This is all sort of fake. Um, And this is a device that repeats throughout early modern plays where people go to a play or a play gets put on for some people and a murder happens that people don't recognize as a murder because they think it's uh, a play, but it turns out the swords are real. Or, uh, you know, a murder happens that turns out to not be a real murder because someone used a quote-unquote prop weapon. Uh, And this is all happening in kind of this time period where uh, the question of what is real, like what is sort of like your imagination hooking into when you uh, engage with art, is underwritten by the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Protestantism in England is very much into this notion that, uh, hardcore Protestantism especially, um, that uh, sort of the, the stage plays are devilish because they get you to feel things for stuff that isn't real in the way that I'm just describing. Um, And one of the lines of defense that some people try to excavate from this is that uh, by disclosing their own fictiveness in kind of these like meta moves or kind of like uh, uh, weird little like spurs to the audience, uh, the theater of this time period is trying to... uh, uh, mediate or negotiate between kind of an official ideological stance, which is that uh, representations cannot be, uh, uh, sort of fictive representations cannot be a uh, gateway or access to truth, um, with the fact that nevertheless, people tend to feel things about stuff that isn't true, and we're making money off of that. Like, what do we do with that? Um, A really good, actually, I think, uh, contemporary pull for this um, is the a uh, uh, silencio scene in David Lynch's uh, Mulholland Drive, Cameron, you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where if you haven't seen Mulholland Drive, it's uh, this is a scene that occurs maybe two thirds of the way in where some characters know I bond. Yes, right. They go into a theater, a very eerie Lynchian theater. There's this kind of strange performance that happens on stage with kind of an MC who keeps saying it's called the, the, the club silencio. Um, And the MC keeps saying, uh, you know, no I banda, Uh, there is no band, Uh, you know, it's all an illusion. Uh, And then a woman comes out um, and she sings a uh, Spanish cover of Roy Orbison's song Crying. And it's like, 
uh, soulful and beautiful and moving. And the the characters who are watching this, like they are being moved. You see them. You see like sort of the 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 shininess in their eyes is kind of like tears are are coming. And then suddenly the woman who is singing uh, just collapses on the stage. But even though she collapses, the song keeps going because it turns out it's not being sung live. It's a recording and she's lip syncing. And, you know, of course, me being me, how I read this is uh, in this Mulholland Drive is a film about the movie industry. This is Lynch trying to kind of surface a similar thing here that... uh, you know, if you're watching a movie, uh, it is all silence, right? There is no band. It's all a recording and it's all being kind of arranged in a way to elicit an emotional reaction from you. So um, I have this like big, deep, like historical bench of these texts, these concerns and how they operate. And at this moment with Lord English, uh, it feels to me like uh Something as similar is happening with Homestuck, right? That it is trying to remind you that uh, there is a thing in front of you that is telling you a story, and it want like it is also like worth pointing out here because I don't think this has necessarily been made explicit by us or even through my um, summaries. Uh, the the Alpha timeline is definitionally the one that Lord English controls. Because Doc Scratch is Lord English's agent. It's the one that, uh, uh, like, Scratch knows from beginning to end. Uh, and it's the reason why all of the alternative timelines cannot happen, right? I've, I've called the Alpha Timeline jealous before. Um, so sort of like this weird tautology that's built into Homestuck's narrative with regard to this character seems to me to necessarily raise questions for the people reading at home, like, you know, think for a minute about what it means that uh, stories can justify themselves in this way, and that even as they do that, even as they sort of surface the mechanisms by which they do it, um, they are making you feel things. Uh, and that, like, that is at least, you know, it's not like you're being determined or, or fully controlled, but, like, your feelings are part of a design. Your reactions are part of, uh, you know, a kind of aesthetic uh, dance between uh, the author and the audience and, like, whatever their medium of choice is. Yeah. I, that, you know, the, the uh, media wouldn't work if it didn't, uh, uh, you know, allow us to package emotions. Mm-hmm. Right, like uh, the the in Mulholland Drive, right? The the reason that they cry is not just that it's beautiful, but because of the expectation that they are going to cry. Mm-hmm. Right, like uh, media is a self fulfilling prophecy, and affect is a self fulfilling prophecy when it runs into objects that are designed to extract those affects from you. Right, like your your feelings are produced by the object. You know it the uh, the. Uh, <laughs> uh, the the film is a factory floor, mm-hmm. right? Like it does stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it produces things. It manufactures stuff. Uh, which again, right? You know, like you were saying at the beginning of uh, talking about this the section here, right? Like that's not that's not a negative. Like that's not like a weird failure. That's not an artificiality. That's that's the the way these things work, mm-hmm. right? Um, I I feel like the especially the contemporary movement around like authenticity. Uh, you know, a honest reaction, the kind of like, uh, you know, non-ideological desire, mm-hmm. right? Like, like our belief, our belief that we are somehow like purely atomistic individuals who like run around and are not constrained or corralled or produced by cultural uh, conditions around us, right? Mm-hmm. Like, 
social media is full of people trying to uh, suggest that they are uninfluenced by the universe around them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that we valorize that mm-hmm. in our culture quite a bit. Of uh, Like the person who doesn't have the wool over their eyes. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, right? But the universe, uh, you know, in our the human experience of the universe is just looking at different wool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and enjoying your flavor of wool that, that's over your eyes. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, this is a meta reflection on mm-hmm. that, to, to, to go back to what you were saying. Um, this, this is Hussey very clearly playing with that, mm-hmm. you know, with the idea of that. And you, and you have to, something that you were saying at the beginning of this too, that I think is really important to hold on to and is easy to lose in the, in, in, uh, Homestuck's, I, I guess, fun with itself mm-hmm. is that the way that, uh, Doc Scratch redefines the entire history of this comic, yes. you know, every, this whole universe via retcon, uh-huh. right? Being essentially, you know, telling this external narrative being like, "Hey, did you know in fact everything involved here has to do with this other thing you didn't know about?" Uh and also that these ancestors who you might have thought I invented a mere 700 pages ago, they've in fact been the most important people the whole time because they are the people that created alternian society, which then creates our universe, blah blah blah, all that mm-hmm. stuff, right? Like that that generation via retcon, you know, this kind of uh summation of something from nothing that then recontextualizes the whole thing. Number one, I think it's very important for us to recognize and just say here, we've been talking about this the whole time. It's like page one of this comic. This is how every single move in this comic has worked so far. So it is a unique and it's meta reflection kind of ness, but this is just a a new kind of skin or a new packet of a very similar move that we have seen over and over and over Mm -hmm. again. That, that's number mm-hmm. one. Number two, to, to uh, align it with what you were just saying or kind of bringing in conversation, this is Hussey presenting two characters who have the ability to redefine the world via retcon. Mm-hmm. And neither is more... Like, uh, Doc Scratch doing this feels more dastardly in some ways because the stakes are so high, but this is the same thing as the Hussey character sitting and, like, banging out all of those summaries and redefining the world, uh, you know, hiding from the bullies in the Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's this, it's the exact same move, right? So when, when you're saying, you know, there's this kind of formal equivalence between these author characters, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and if someone takes that as like, yeah, there's a formal equivalence because they fight one another, like that, that's true, but also like kind of mechanistically, mm-hmm. I think, you know, it, it, we, we want to be pretty pointed about this here. You know, I, I, I think that, What's happening is that there is being presented a kind of like meta layer that there are different layers that have different functions. You know, there's like the main cast of characters and then there's a layer on top of that, which are these author, you know, figures who stand in and kind of redefine the rules of the world consistently. Suburb is one of those layers, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, if there's a third author here, it is the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then on top of that, now we have Lord English. Mm -hmm. Um, which uh, is pretty interesting, but something that has nothing to do with that, but which is uh, still interesting to me is um, what's going on with uh, Billy is slick here. Uh, I mean, he's got cancer, Cameron. Yeah. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And that cancer is Jack Noir and or a bomb and or a bomb. It's all these things. This is uh, this is one of the things that I think also we haven't talked a whole lot about. Um, but Homestuck is so very clearly written by someone who has a background in computer science. Oh, you know what? That's not what I was going to say. I was going to say someone who was clearly on the internet in 2010. (laughs) Um, 
but because the play on words of cancer, right? right it's just like, oh yeah, this. She as, is taking me I was back. Say, as we as we <laughs> used to say on 4chan, right? This is this is the cancer killing 4chan, or this thread is cancer. Like very uh, cavalier uh, uh, use of that uh, you know sickness in those terms to describe posting we don't like. Right. <laughs> the ultimate posting I don't like infecting uh my the frog universe with a with a bad dna sequence <laughs> yeah i'll tell you what was really wild about reading this uh historically is i was also reading foucault's pendulum uh by umberto mm-hmm. echo uh which is a novel about a bunch of guys who kind of for shits and giggles try come up with a conspiracy theory basically to see how many people they can trick uh and then it turns out that people who believe in conspiracy theories believe in lots of things and are willing to believe in lots of things so they accidentally generate basically like the ultimate conspiracy theory and like all these like different shady uh actors are like trying to search them out to figure out like the truth of stuff and one character ends up getting cancer, uh, and uh, the the narrator meets him in the hospital, and he, the the character with cancer, says, uh, this is happening because we made that conspiracy theory, because we played uh, fast and loose with the Book of Life, uh, and we introduced a mutation into the world's, like, genetic code, and now that's come back, and it's in me now, right? We've made the cancer, and now the cancer is in me, and it's going to eat the rest of the world. Um, that was some fun, you know, circumstantial simultaneity to be reading Foucault's Pendulum in that specific uh, section, like, literally the day that this dropped. Wow, what a feeling! Mm. Um, Historical Michael, just just uh, like a pig in poop. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, the what I was going to say though about uh, uh, Hussey having a background in computer science. So mm-hmm. uh, Billius Slick, the giant frog who is the universe, <laughs> right. has uh, a cancerous tumor on his chin. Um, that is maybe Jack Noir, but is also maybe somehow like this giant bomb that uh, John scooped out of the battlefield's core and now that uh, Rose and Dave are escorting out into the furthest ring. All of these things are sort of possibly equivalent to one another, um, but uh, seem to seem to be able to influence each other or to align with each other, to parallel each other, one, by the logic of, you know, circumstantial simultaneity which is this way that Homestuck has developed or, like, deployed that Doc Scratch has given us uh, for a way to talk about, like, uh, parallels that seem like they might be meaningful. Um, But there's also kind of a Mm -hmm. a real case of, like, uh, computer science uh, or, like, you know, programmer's brain here where uh, you can have, like, multiple labels or, like, calls for a specific variable, but where that variable gets renamed. You know what I mean? Sure. Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right, but it's like uh, uh, the fact that, you know, Skya understands the entirety of the history of the worlds that it interacts with as just a a set of data points that it can just pull out of the list and, like, press together side by side, right? And then it'll hook those together and be like, you know, this is is a moment of circumstantial simultaneity where this thing happened, right? Uh, And it... 
like self-authenticates this kind of uh, platonic worldview that I think is uh, uh, kind of built into a lot of computer programming where you have transcendental classes and objects and then the things that you can make are necessarily like uh, particular instances of those classes or objects. Yeah, you know, I I would I wouldn't call it platonic um in 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 like the way that I think about it, but you know, it is isomorphy, yes. right? A kind of universal isomorphy in which uh the structure of the thing exists in such a way that it can have um that any given piece of information can have an instantiation, mm-hmm. you know, a, across any you know, any part of the kind of vast shared structure. I mean, what what's kind of uh Computer science-y, I would say, or, or like, uh, uh, you know, in, in my universe, assemblage theory mm-hmm. about it, right? Is that there is a, a set of shared assumptions that undergird everything here. Um, and it's exactly what you're saying, right? There's a kind of universal replaceability. Um, Doc Scratch, it, it, there is, it, within the logic of Homestuck, uh, the cancer could be anything. Mm-hmm. People right, are asking like, in the like thread, it, I think Rose is the cancer. There's like a great big right. <laughs> derail. Uh, yeah, right? Because that why why wouldn't it be, right? There, it, at the level of like metaphysical jump up that is the universe is a frog, <laughs> right? The kind of allegorical relation there, right? Like uh, this whole universe is a frog. And so then therefore with uh, within the frog's anatomy that could isomorphically be anything, mm-hmm. right? It could be equivalent to any kind of actor or object or whatever in the world. Uh, and that doesn't really make sense visually at all, but like from the, con- the way that the, that Homestuck has conceptually presented, it's like universe structure that, that would make perfectly fine sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I, you know, I told you this. I sent you a message. But I, I think I'm deeply worried that Billy is slick is going to be some sort of Michigan J frog. <laughs> and th- and luckily we got to the next part of episode. I don't think that's <laughs> luckily he's just a big sad frog with a tumor. <laughs> yeah, luckily he's just a, a legitimate actual frog. <laughs> but uh, other stuff that happens here, why, well, there's like a rap battle between Gamesy and Tavros that just happens yeah. here. Uh, it, it's it, it's part of what you said actually about these updates last time, which is that so many of these kind of little like you know sort through the updates yourself uh, scratch pages um, mm-hmm. are are very much focused on character hangouts. Uh, like there's obviously like plot is happening and sort of revelations are being presented, but like for example in in this section's reading, uh, Rose and Dave just like talk about sports. For a page and a half in in like it's stuff that I didn't summarize because it's literally just like them riffing on each other and coming up with like the most obscure sports to- terminology that they can. Which, by the way, did you did you notice the uh, the mention of the googly? I, I did not notice <laughs> yeah. the mention of the googly. I will say that once I realized this was just a conversation about sports, I might skip a little bit. Anyway, uh, yeah, so th- there's kind of like that little character moment, like Rose and Dave, like chilling and hanging out, even though they have a, a critical suicide mission that they're doing. Um, and then we get this like sudden move kind of back into Act 5, Part 1 uh, territory with uh, like a, a, a fun little interaction, like a, a very kind of fandom style interaction, right? Like what would happen if these two characters interacted with one another uh and then also what if one of them had a crush on the other Uh, and it seems like on the one hand well yeah 
This seems, I think, targeted toward the reader base in the sense that there are a lot of discussions being had about Gamzee and his evilness. And like, where was this? Was it always there? But, you know, the, the comic has already given us one answer here, which is that there was no timeline in which Gamzee did not go crazy and start killing everyone. Um, mm-hmm. pe- it's because he's a juggler. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. right? Like, at, at its core, the logic is... <laughs> because Gamzee is a juggalo. Right. Look, the, the hatchet man gonna uh-huh. hatchet. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> uh, but uh, before the hatcheting begins, we get this like sweet little moment of Gamzee just being like, yeah, by the way, like Ta- Tavros, you want to make out? Uh, yeah, the uh, 3987 uh-huh. Tavros imagining <laughs> Gamzee like romantically. And I, <laughs> Gamzee is like, it looks like Gamzee is riding in a in a, a car with the top yes. down. <laughs> like the pose there is extreme, like like senior portrait Gamzee. Uh-huh. Uh, there's something very funny to me about yeah. that. Uh, and it, uh, so you know, it, it gives us that glimpse of Gamzee because we didn't see a whole lot of Gamzee also right prior to uh, this big turn in his character. Uh, so we right. get that, and then it also parallels with the next update, where Gamzee reveals that, uh, you know, like Karkat, he is responsible for everything. Uh, but even more so, because not only did he, like, he, he didn't, you know, give the give the universe cancer, he just made it terminal by creating the conditions that would give rise to Jack Noir that already, you know, previously existed, mm-hmm. and then also conjuring the, the dream cal that you had so many questions about way back when. I know. God damn. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about a talk about a callback. I was like, wow. He, so, uh, but Cal doesn't have a dream self. He was invented in dreams. Yes. <laughs> the- <laughs> Cal, Cal, little Cal is just dream self. Mm-hmm. That's wild. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But who cares? <laughs> uh, what's going on here in the little in the image? This is on forty twenty seven mm-hmm. when uh, it's like post murder. Gamesy is talking to Dave. You know, Dave way back. Mm-hmm. Tell them all what's going on in this image with a little Cal appearing. Well, there? so we have uh, to describe this for the listener. Um, it's a split screen. Mm-hmm. We have Dave in the past on the left on Earth. He's at his computer. Um, and you know, it's in the past because he has triangular shades just like his uh, brother. Uh, which he switches out well, in the blue box, blue box. On yes. The desk. And so he because he's so he hasn't yet switched out his uh, old shades for his Ben Stiller shades. On the right, we have Gamzee using Terezi's uh, computer glasses to troll Dave. Uh, he has around him uh, Lil Cal in his snazzy green suit, as well as uh, Tavros's decapitated uh, uh, corpse. Right. The head and the body are separate and there's blood everywhere. And as uh, Gamzee is sitting there, uh, there's also a Gamzee shadow running around, like moving things, which is also when Bro was uh, moving Cal around. This is how he moved, right? He, he The idea is he's this is this is how Bro does his like puppeteering <laughs> is he just he just right. like uses his like ninja like speed to move things around uh, while you like can't see him. Um, and so Gamzee has started doing this sort of thing, too. Um, it's also 
because he's hanging out with Tavros's uh corpse, right? Like there's there's some sort of uh begging for a connection to be made there between this and that previous uh invitation for Tavros to come over and make out. And of course, Tavros's lips have been pressed into a pucker because Terezi tried to resurrect him. So there's also this implication here that like Gamzee is making out with Tavros's severed head. Right, because his uh if you if you look at it Gamesy's little lips, they get blood. Yes, he's got like a, a brown Tavros blood smeared on his lips, and then part of the animation is like as he as his shadow like zips around behind him, he gets more blood on his lips. So Gamesy, you're wild. So this is this is again another one of those weird things where um I I mean this is one of the reasons why I stick with Homestuck in the way that I do. Uh you know, I, I come into this thing, as I've already admitted, at a point where I was like, oh, this th- thing seems like it's going to kind of do stuff with fandom in a way that might be a little bit confrontational and mean that uh, uh, little, little black hearted Michael might be into. And then very sort of weirdly and rapidly, uh, I kind of change my perspective on a lot of this stuff. Um, but Homestuck continues with kind of this weird ambiguity or ambivalence in that, uh, to touch on an example I already uh, mentioned, uh, people uh, wanted to know more about the ancestors. And then the comic is like, oh, you want to know more about the ancestors? Well, here, like the the worst version of the narrator is going to talk to you at length for pages and pages about the ancestors. And meanwhile, another version of the author is going to come into the comic and complain about this other author talking about the ancestors uh here we have a scene where Gamzee and Tavros have like a nice little character moment right a very shippy character moment the sort of thing that you might imagine mm-hmm. for your fanfic and it's like oh you see here's here's the potential humanity of Gamzee before he lost it because he just he just like everyone for some reason <laughs> wanted to get with Tavros um and then here it's followed immediately it's Peter Panification what was that it's Peter Panification. Yes, the Peter Panification. Once you become Peter yes. Pan, everyone wants to get with you. <laughs> that is, that explains it. Yeah. Um, but here it's followed immediately by, you know, that that sweet character moment is followed immediately by, oh yeah, Gamzee's still into Tavros. He's into Tavros so much, he's going to make out with the corpse too, right? So it, it's kind of like a, a weird little twist on, like, it starts as what seems to be maybe almost like fan service or catering right um and then it twists it in a way that feels a little gross or hostile it's it's actually a similar to dynamic to when t- uh hussy talks about in the book commentary the fans willed tavros using a wheelchair into the story because it was such a popular idea that uh hussy incorporates it and then also makes it a direct response of like horrific abuse by another one of the characters well, you know, I, I think you're right about the the thing going on with Gamzee there, right? Like, the, there's this kind of—I mean, it's genie logic, right? Like, uh-huh. uh, you get what you you get what you asked for, right? Yes, the exactly. Paul curls, uh, but also like it's Juggalo shit, right? Like, necrophilia is all throughout, you uh-huh. know, uh, uh, ICP stuff, and especially like ICP, uh, like hangers on. They're like additional dudes, mm-hmm. um, you know. Uh, Gosh, I, I, you know, I'm really having to delve back 20 years of my life, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think I've said before on the show, you know, I do, I knew a dude who was a straight up juggalo in high school and like, he listened to all of those like third tier hatchet man records people mm-hmm. and like whatever your imagination of a juggalo is like those people went even further into that. And so like, it's very on brand 
you know, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, on, uh, on character type. Uh, for these yeah when it came to the ancestors uh, I actually just wrote in my notes like this is so tedious <laughs> yeah like I was so de- I, I I'm not not hostile to the ancestors although I do think it's a little bit weird that the ancestor stories that we've gotten so far have been very much like genreified mm-hmm. you know they're a particular kind of story and that what we get here is very flat like uh it's not the swashbuckly kind of thing anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the um, the kind of riff on the Bra- Black Freighter or like uh, Errol Flynn or anything like that. Now it's just straight up, here's the Homestuck standard narratorial voice. Uh, you know, this like weird kind of combination of science fiction and fantasy, um, you know, through the very Hussian combina- combinatrix of that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to happen. Uh, and now we're just going to get more like plotty plot, 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 plotty mm-hmm. plot. Mm-hmm. Doc uh, Scratch is going to tell you about uh, Troll Jesus. Oh, yeah, Troll, uh, who is, you know, uh, the explanation of the, uh, <laughs> of the, what, cancer? Is it cancer? Uh, where, I, does Car- where does Carcat sign? I don't even oh, know. Oh, the signless. Oh, yeah. So how this works is Carcat, yeah. uh, 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 as he has a mutant blood cast. So both he right. and his ancestor would not have had a sign. Uh, but his ancestor being the sufferer, when he was killed, he was put, his, his hands were bound in uh, hot uh, metal manacles, um, which happened to look like the the uh, cancer symbol, which ends up becoming like one Alternia's version of a crucifix and two, the symbol on Karkat's shirt, which then becomes our cancer due to universe shenanigans. Yes. Uh, Yeah. That, that whole thing. I was like, all right, like that's a real, um, that's a real moment of like, you can feel when someone was like, I've fucking solved it. Yes. Here we go. Here, like <laughs> everything around that just feels so pat to me. Pat, pat, shoo, shoo, shoo. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, that I was like, Jesus Christ. I like and, literally Jesus Christ. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I mean, it works. Like, this is not a criticism of, of, you know, like the thing itself. I think the storytelling is fine there, but like the way that is like a little too clever, I guess, is what I'm reacting to. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, all right, buddy. But yeah, I just, I, I didn't like, these ancestors, then they're like pseudo Justice League of like a uh, like a timeline made over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right. Hey, it's the ad break. If you like listening to the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch. The link is in the description of the episode. You can go there and you can support us for as little as a dollar a month. Literally everything you can contribute helps. Michael is reading bajillions of pages of threads. He's reading lots of posts and things like that. I'm reading this comic and we're doing all kinds of other stuff too. If you want to check out things like bonus episodes for this, we have a tier uh, where you can go and check that out. We've been, uh, you know, we watched Hook and talked about Hook for a very long time. We've checked out The Never Ending Story. Little Monsters, I think this coming uh, bonus episode is going to be on Armageddon. Mm-hmm. So we've been digging in really uh, seriously with all the kind of paratexts and things that are around Homestuck. And as you probably could have heard in this very partisode, that stuff is load-bearing. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is important and serious and real. And you know what? I bet we're going to watch Doctor Strange at some point. Maybe we'll maybe we'll do some multiverses. You want to do some multiverses uh, at some point? I guess so. 
you love a multiverse. Don't even pretend. <laughs> Fans around the world love the multiverse. But we've got a whole multiverse of different shows for you to check out. <laughs> like Just King Things, which is uh, us reading through the works of Stephen King in publication order. Uh, you can check that out. If you like this show, I promise you you're going to like that. Even if you don't like Stephen King or don't know anything about Stephen King, I promise you we've got cool stuff going on over there around that we also talk about movies on the bonus episodes for it we've got game study study buddies which is a show where we check out all the things uh going on in game studies and talk about them and kind of make them a little more bit more approachable for uh, people who don't have the same academic training that we do and weirdly enough a lot of the stuff that shows up on that show is also informative uh for the show we've done a little unit over there about role-playing games and the way that people get involved in it and there's a weird confluence with homestuck there too so you should check that out as well as the other stuff that we could do you can go to rangedtouch.com that's also in the description below to check all of that out and you can also check out some other shows and things like that at youtube.com slash rangetouch remember patreon.com slash rangetouch to support the show we don't spend any money on advertising uh everything that we do is listener supported so uh if you're a listener and you enjoy the show think about throwing us a couple dollars a month that really legitimately actually seriously helps out we appreciate it if you do that already, and if not, think about doing it. I'm going to read now a review. If you give us a five-star review on uh, on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you can review the thing, I will read on the show. So, gotten some really good reviews uh, over the past few days, some really excellent stuff. Thanks so much for everyone who's leaving a five-star review. I got to save a couple ones because you never know when we're going to run out, but here's a great one. This is from Nicomedes, The Best Way to Revisit Homestuck. Christ on the cross suffered less than Cameron in this podcast. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far, but that sure is a funny thing to say. You, yeah. At the very least, uh, Christ's pants weren't pulled up quite as high as yours are. Brutal. Mm -hmm. Did you notice that, by the way? No, I didn't. Oh, that when uh, Jesus Carcat gets executed, his pants are pulled up really high. <laughs> it's because he's pants yes! cat. Historical pants yes! cat. That's a wild thing to do. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> it's a fun little fun little insight here in the ad break for y'all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, back to the show. Bye. Uh I, although again, we are back in like the the land of the dead emperors or whatever from the never ending story, right? Like mm -hmm. the story that we are in is the leftover cast off, you know, we're living in the ruins of stories that have been told over and over and over again. Like I, I really can't overstate. Uh, the further we get in this comic, how much it is in conversation with the never-ending story. I mean, I know mm -hmm. you've said that, and you said that in the episode, and we've said that a few times, but it's kind of astonishing that every time we record a part episode, it's like, oh, here is something that is central to the never-ending story's like, big mechanism of how it thinks about narrative that's just flatly reproduced uh, in structure, isomorphically, mm -hmm. in, in Homestuck. Mm -hmm. Um and so if you haven't listened to that bonus ode, it is kind of a load-bearing bonus ode, I think. Yeah. In that it, it really is kind of uh, critical for how I, I'm thinking about this at this point. Um, also, it's weird that, like, Dune gets folded into this. Yeah. What what do you think about that? Uh, uh, so which part are you thinking of specifically for Dune here? Well, I uh, the the space travel. Yeah. Okay. Um, space travel's just Dune. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we get this... Uh, thing about Solix's ancestor who gets in enslaved by uh 
her imperious condescension, right? The the sort of effectively immortal empress of the trolls. Not really effectively immortal, but long-lived. This is also, uh, this is actually to, to touch back on something you said back when we first started Act 5. Um, you you said that uh, in that episode, or that partisode, mm-hmm. you raised some sort of critique or like question about, you know, like, well, Alternia's caste system, like, where is it? Where does it come from? Or like, you know, these, these are... Th- these are institutions that have histories, right? And like power exercises itself throughout history and and, and uh, builds these structures. Um, and here we get the answer to like, where did all this come from? And it turns out it was the author figure who secretly way back at the beginning uh, installed all this awful shit into people's lives and then has just been like maintaining it in, uh, throughout the entire fictional history. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get that. And then we also get this... Uh, uh, idea of the troll empress uh expanding her empire ever outward right conquering all these people and using uh, the psionic solix's ancestor as basically the engine of her ship and then the image uh if you want to look at this uh is on page 4060 where she's just got him like a uh, body horror like gigarian like incorporated into some part of her ship um yeah yeah uh so anyway right she she does dune she like has this like uh a uh, huge empire that the troll empire extends through stars uh and all of it is predicated on kind of this devil's bargain that the original troll children who were just too dang nice uh to win their game uh uh made and sort of the cost. And it's, of course, like uh, uh, for a lot of readers, this is backfilling like, oh, this is why all of the the troll kids get to build their own houses. Right. What an interesting detail. Um, so uh, then the the vast glub happens and everyone dies, which I think is cool as hell. I love a glug. <laughs> Uh, yeah, what she writes or uh, what happens, what Doc Scratch says, right? Uh, when the vast glub happens, in that instant, her empire was gone. Glub glub swan song wiped out her entire race, saved the Condess and her lone heiress, leaving the empire nothing more than a galactic necropolis of floating tombs. Hell yeah, baby. I love me a galactic necropolis of floating tombs. Somebody's been reading the Malazan Book of the Fallen. Somebody's been reading Harrow the Ninth. Um, <laughs> uh oh, wait, hold on. Uh oh, uh oh, uh oh. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah, we get like this sort of like gra- this glimpse of a much grander kind of space opera that was just happening in the background, right? More, more kind of retcon magic. By the way, there was a space opera happening, like you know, three degrees removed from the story that we've been paying attention to. Uh, yep. And it also effectively, right, gives us the entire history of Alternia from, uh, uh, in terms of timeline, right, the the thing with the Sufferer happens uh, really early on, and then we get the end of it all with uh, Aradia's ancestor, the Handmaid, working for Lord English and uh, being called to enlist the Condess as uh, Lord English's new agent here, here at the end of, of all things. Um, one thing uh, to also note is that way back when Doc Scratch was first met, mentioned or like first introduced uh in sort of the mechanism i think of the vast glove was introduced as well one of the things mm-hmm. that i got from the thread that i thought was interesting 
uh, was that uh, at that moment on the MSPA official forums, people were already doing fan content of like, oh, it's after the vast glub and the Condess has returned and she and Doc Scratch are just hanging out together. So, Weird. right. So this is like a moment that uh, uh, has been in some ways anticipated by the fandom uh, for over a year, uh, finally coming together uh, for real in the narrative in, in one of those ways that, you know, uh, everything about this uh, has already been written in the posts about it. Yeah, the yeah, you know, I the, something that's really interesting to me about the the ancestors is I, I do think that they're um, well, I guess there's a lot of impulses going on at one time mm -hmm. uh, is, is how I want to phrase it, meaning that Hussey cannot help but put converse put characters in relationship to one another mm -hmm. like they, the the moment the ancestors were introduced it was inevitable that they would be able to talk to and interact with all the other characters because of like dream bubbles or just this, right? Mm -hmm. Just like long longevity and time travel, whatever. And so I think in some ways that's a little bit disappointing, mm -hmm. uh, like narratively, because the idea that they're kind of mythical or that they, they are at a remove from the current characters, I think makes them a lot cooler. Mm -hmm. um, because they they take on a kind of different narrative tone. And so what's happening here in the moment in which these characters are being introduced into like the plot proper, right? Uh, when they're no longer mythological, but but real, you know, mm -hmm. practical. Mm -hmm. they, I think they lose a lot, which is which is unfortunate. You know, they 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 they, they don't get to be just like big, broad caricatures. They have to be characters, right? The Condess herself is uh, very strongly at this point implied to be Betty Crocker. <laughs> right that's not interesting to me. right like <laughs> so that's like one thing is it's like dang uh there was something cool about the way that these function before that i think is being lost here in the in the shift uh the second one is that i think especially in these lines that you just read hussy telling a big weird science fiction story i like that more mm-hmm like, I, I liked some of the relationships there. And, like, what we get after this, the ultimate deflationary move, as you're talking about, like, shoo, shoo, sh pat, 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 right? Mm -hmm. Or whatever, right? Like, that's very funny to me. But I think I would rather read Hussey going long about, like, all this weird science fiction space stuff. That, like, it's pretty cool and big. And it's combinatory of a lot of, like, uh, you know, like, Dune and these other things. But in a way that's pretty interesting, I think. Mm -hmm. Um. I kind of like that that more traditional novelistic storytelling mechanism than the like relationship focused stuff that that you know we've been in for a minute or or and maybe that's not just like in the abstract. I don't think I like that just inherently more, but after sitting through like a thousand pages of like teen feelings, right? Which mm -hmm. are like cool and fine and I'm not dismissive of teen feelings and like the YA maneuver here, but it's actually interesting to watch Hussey kind of flex their muscles a little bit in a different direction for a while. And I wish that had been maybe a hundred pages rather than, <laughs> you know, whatever, 25 or something. You heard it here. Cameron Kunzelman says more ancestors, please. I, I don't well, No, I don't look. I want to be very clear. <laughs> I'm not saying more ancestors, please. What I'm saying here is more of this narrative style. Mm hmm. And if we get more of that, okay, cool. Okay. Willing to willing to be uh, uh, monkey's pod on this one, as I am <laughs> monkey's pod about literally everything I enjoy about Homestuck. I, I mean, I, th I guess that's part of the deal, right? Is it's like uh, there is truly the relationship with the uh, with the fans, 
that Hussey very clearly has at this point, you know, just reading the text with no additional context, anything like that, is, uh, oh, you like ice cream? Here's 80 pounds of ice cream. Mm -hmm. Oh, you want to smoke a cigarette? Smoke the whole box. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And ultimately what we learn is that they're all little Bobby Hills. They'll smoke the whole box every time. Uh huh. (laughs) <laughs> it's not an issue. <laughs> and uh that I, I think that's that you know that turns into a problem. So I don't want to smoke the whole box. You know, I don't wanna I I would like to eat just a pint. I feel like I got a spoonful of the ancestors of this narrative style in which the ancestors have been written. I would like to have one pint of the ancestors, and I'm afraid that uh I'm a, I'm about to eat eighty gallons of the ancestors, <laughs> and I'm not into that. I'm not excited about that part. And I'm not excited about that 80 gallons if it is in the kind of conceptual universe or the narrative mode of the rest of the comic. Mm-hmm. I, I like their little bubble universe that they're in of like being ta- talked about in a different way. And that at the end of this section is being lost already. So I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't have a lot of faith that we're going to return to it, but I also don't know what's going to happen. Well, so. I mean, speaking of ancestors and things that may or may not happen, um, what do you think of the big uh, uh, implication of what's going to happen for the scratch? I mean, it's not even it's in, in the readership at this point. It's not even implication, right? It is clear that this is what we're teeing up for about what is exactly going to happen after the scratch resets uh, the game session and who the characters are going to be uh, and in the spotlight. Oh, say more. Well, so I feel like this is a very leading question yes. that maybe I don't know the answer to. <laughs> well, it, it requires you to uh, uh, make some extrapolations that you would do uh, in the course of things if you were reading serially that you might not be tempted to do if you're reading archivalry. Ar- right. Archivalry. Right. Again, archival. Um, that's that. That's on Alternia. That's uh-huh. the uh, competition that people have to become uh, historians. They have to <laughs> develop an archivalry. Uh, yeah. That, let me say this uh, before before you dive into that because it's uh, attached to something I've been thinking. In this partisode, in the next partisode, which everyone knows at this point, or maybe you will know very shortly, is very short. It's only a few pages that we're reading for that for mm-hmm. a very tactical reason. Um, the amount of work that I have to do to understand what the fuck is going on at any given second of both this part episode and the next one as someone who is only reading the text in front of them, right? I'm not uh-huh. looking at a wiki. I'm not like looking at threads. I'm not Googling what is the connection between X and Y. The amount of work that I have to do to even get to the point of your summaries. Uh, <laughs> like oftentimes for these, I'm just listening to your summaries and going, oh yeah, that is what happened. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. Oh. But like the amount of of not even extrapolation, but like, intellectual labor of like writing shit down and comparing it to the past that I would have to do to have a uh, efficient understanding of the actual stakes of any given moment (laughs) is immense. Uh, It truly is large, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that can really get lost if you just like blaze through the comic or you just read the comic. Well, I I guess one thing is like a, a thing that is very clear is that no matter what happens, it will be explained to you in the future. So I don't really have to do a lot of thinking because if I'm confused, I just know it will be explained in the future, either by you or by an, an a character telling me exactly what I was supposed to learn from something. Mm-hmm. Right. So that I have faith that that will happen. And so there's moments about like the scratch that we're that we are about to talk about where it's like I have an idea of what's going to go on this kind of reset stuff and all of that. 
and like this weird replication thing that happens of like uh i mean uh, you know uh, uh, repetition with a difference uh-huh. oh, oh, oh. like those things i get kind of in a vibey sense right i get it, the broad structure but the actual mechanisms of it of like who is what uh, okay i don't know right <laughs> uh so like there's that going on uh and and then the other thing is just like is it it's the 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 reading of the comic at the time you, if you're not plugged into this, I have no idea what the hell you were getting. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. I just, I if you're not plugged into a thread or like talking with people about this regularly at this point, Tumblr is up and running as yeah. as you've uh, said a few times. So if you're not plugged into that, I have no idea what reading Homestuck would have been like at the time. It has to be bewildering. Like you're either committed and learning about it, or you were just absolutely lost. <laughs> uh, and so, but but again, that's not very different from the other contemporary stuff that's doing that either, you know. And I think, weirdly enough, I think a lot about Lost, mm-hmm. which is like if you weren't plugged into like thinking about it or talking with or doing some water cooler talking about Lost, like season three, the you know some stuff is just deeply confusing, uh huh, um, and uh, hard to do. So you know that's not even like a big swerve, I don't think, for for the you the the narrative devices that this is employing. Uh, but it is it is a little bit uh, confusing, or like even Twin Peaks, right? Yeah, like uh, yeah, a, a given moment of Twin Peaks is like, all right, well, I guess I guess there's a giant here now, and he's talking. Yeah, uh, <laughs> all right. But uh, anyway, so that's all to say. You tell me whatever you wanted to say about that. Well, so uh, I'm glad you're you're laying this all out because one of the things that is happening in the something awful thread, rather consistently, is like uh, people just posting for pages, trying to parse either what is happening in the comic at the moment or doing their own recaps, trying to figure out like, wait a minute, uh, if we straighten out all of the timeline bullshit, where is this character? What are they doing? What are they up to? What could they do next? And so there's all this, like, collaborative effort of people, like, trying to straighten this stuff out uh, and then taking that work and being like, well, if that's where things are, then here's what might happen next. Uh, you know, and this is something that's been happening from the beginning, right, is it happens with everything is people trying to call their shots or speculate or, or figure out what's going, you know, uh, what, what the next turn this thing is going to take. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the implications of Doc Scratch's uh, description of how the scratch works, that a scratch resets a session but also transposes uh, the player characters and their ancestors, uh, reveals to people that uh, in the post-scratch version of, like, the, the, the kids are getting ready to initiate a scratch, it is going to reset mm-hmm. their session, and... If the logic holds, then ancestors and descendants will be transposed, meaning that uh, the players in the new session, and I just sent you some uh, fan art from like a couple months into 2011 uh, showing some of this, uh, the players in the new session are going to be uh, Nana, Grandpa, Bro, and Mom. Oh, because okay, got it, got it, got it. Right, because I, I was, I was like the ancestors, but that is their equivalent. I get it. right. Got it. Uh, and so, like, people have been thinking about uh, this for a while, just in terms of like, you know, what were these characters like when they were younger? And I'm gonna uh, the uh, piece that I just sent you was some fan art by. Uh, this will all come. This will be on uh, Homestuck made this fan art uh, That was by Paper Artichokes. Uh, this is some uh, sprites by someone uh, who went by the name R Labs uh, of what these characters would look like. 
Um, so the same. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, and the. Uh, With different haircuts. Yes, different haircuts. The same, but different haircuts. Why wouldn't dad have a hat? That's not dad. Oh, oh, because this is. Oh, I dad wasn't yeah, made by it. ectobiology. That's, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. I see. I see. Mm-hmm. Dad, dad's an interesting wrinkle in all this. That's grandpa. So yes, that is grandpa. <laughs> Why doesn't he have a monocle? then? <laughs> Well, I, I guess uh, the assumption is that little boys don't like monocles. Mm, checkmate. Um, <laughs> I would have loved to wear Got a monocle <laughs> when I was a child. Oh, of, co- of course you would. <laughs> you would do it now if you yes. could get away with it, but it clashes with your hat. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so uh, people figure out or sort of speculate. They're like, oh, like after the scratch, like the, the, the ancestors and the players are going to switch places. So... In the next, like in Act Six, we're going to meet the kid versions of these uh, uh, adult characters, and this has been the groundwork for this has been laid in the story itself. Because after Rose discovered her mom's body, she had this moment where she was like, you know, I always felt like she was she was a a, a heroine destined for her own adventure, but never got it, or something like that. And we get a little bit more along these lines as well. Uh, in in this reading, uh, but this idea uh, that I gestured to in the hook episode of you know what happens when you end up in a story that you thought was over or that like you know with the story and the age discrepancy of like uh, uh, the story itself between uh, the individual who is taking part in it and and then like uh, the the hero's journey that they're being forced to go on or whatever um, that's happening and this is just oh. One of the weirdest things in the world to me, historically, and it continues to be one of the weirdest things in the world forever. Uh, like just the the idea of starting this comic with these characters and having just like the fun jester grandma. And then here we are uh, two and some change years in. And the author of the comic says to me, like, guess what? It's grandma's adventure time now. Uh, what a move, what a bizarre move and, and, uh, further kind of like cements my interest in Homestuck of the, as this thing where I'm just constantly wondering, like, you could do anything. You could do anything in the world when telling your story and you have chosen to like bring up the idea that we need to learn more about John Egbert's grandma. You could do anything. And you decided to do this. Yes. Right. Like not not. And I'm not saying that because it's like, oh, that's an awful idea and it's bad. But it's more like that sets up such a bizarre situation <laughs> that could just like, I don't know, be not very good or just like it's it's such a weirdly specific and unique situation to end up in, I guess, is the other thing that really enchants me about it of of like this kind of reset button. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's a constraint that produces like n- novelty, uh-huh. uh, and uh, sometimes novelty is not inherently good, and sometimes constraints are not inherently good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of fixation and focus for good reason on uh, arbitrary constraint in this comic, yes, because it is full of arbitrary constraint. Uh, but I don't think there's enough focus on. Uh, the the opposite, and it's because the comic itself asks you to focus on it, right? Like, uh-huh. well, we've set up all these weird rules, and uh, let's see what happens. Um, but just as often as that, there are 
complete radical buckings of constraint, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like the invention of a massive weird space opera that's going on simultaneously, not just in the past, right? Which is like the fantasy or, or the, the narrative device that's been uh, delivered so far, but the fact that the space opera is ongoing and will in fact have a major effect on the plot as it is in front of us, right? It's mm-hmm. no longer mythological. It is now contemporary, that in and of itself is the eruption of constraint, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's the breaking of it, but it's not flagged as such, right? Mm-hmm. It's flagged as, this is just how the comic goes, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, wait, this is, we're clarifying that. And so there's something really interesting to me about the idea that the constraint can set up such a situation that, like, it's interesting for Hussey as an author, but it's also interesting for fans to like dig into, and then it can just be blown up with zero consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and and people will fixate on the constraint, but not on the the blowing up, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, I think it, it rankles people a little bit every time that we're like, you can make anything, <laughs> like the constraint is fake. Yeah, <laughs> you can you can invent anything you want. And we've got a little bit of feedback on that where people are like. Well, uh, that's not kind of what this comic is about, except when it is, Um, you know, kind of arbitrarily. And I think that's that. I mean, I don't say that to be like, and therefore the comic has owned itself and is is totally uh, for losers. Like, that's not the reason for bringing this up. Right. The reason for bringing this up is that the points of. Uh, the maintenance of constraint and the points of explosion of constraint are actually really interesting to think about mm-hmm. and to think about why and what it gets you and what it kind of precludes. Yeah. Uh, that, that is the point of reading and it is fun to do. Yep. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know. Well, maybe this will happen and maybe we'll get uh <laughs> grandpa. Well, so this, I'm glad you said this because this brings up something that I actually say in the thread. Grandpa, um, and this happens uh, a couple of uh, this happens in the future of this reading. It actually happens after uh, the end of the last reading, but I think it's oh useful no. for illustrating what you were just getting at. Because when we say like, "Yeah, this is all made up," <laughs> we are not yeah. saying that this is all made up and therefore it's stupid and bad. Uh, and the other thing that I, I sometimes hear is that like uh, we are holding Andrew Hussey kind of uh, accountable for like our theories of authorship, or at least you know my theories of authorship. And there's no reason to expect Andrew to have like my same opinions or like my same ideas about why texts work yep and that's true right like i i do not think andrew hussey and i need to have the same type of uh, opinions on authorship but one thing that i think needs to be made very clear and this relates to what i was saying earlier about uh uh, you know, my time in grad school and learning all this stuff about theater and how it worked 400 years ago uh that did not happen separately from me reading homestuck I am reading Homestuck and doing all of this historical research simultaneously, and the theory of authorship that I am developing and trying to sort of, like, lay out uh, throughout the course of this specific show that you're listening to is formulated in response to Homestuck, right? They are not disconnected. My ideas on authorship grow out of this comic, Um, And particularly sometimes in places where I think like I can see or I can imagine why the comic did this or that thing, why Hussey made this choice rather than this one. Uh, But then I also have the privilege of not being kind of in the thick of all this thing. And I can look at the consequences of some of these choices, like this uh, attempt to mediate between um, uh, 
uh, fandom's kind of uh, uh, maybe vernacular ideas of character idealism, um, and then like what actually has to happen when you're a creator making a story, making calls, and and how this like results in maybe some ugly back and forths between your your readership and yourself. Um, I can mm-hmm. look at these things and be like, here's where I think maybe the the theory of authorship needs to be improved where the ways that we think through stories should be uh, uh clarified or like we need to take a step back right um like my the the other way to put this to be sort of um uh, frank about something that we've we've talked around a bit uh up until this point in the show is that Andrew Hussey has come out and said in this in our present year of 2022 actually yeah was it this year um when hussey gave that interview with, it was last year was it last year with anna diaz uh, at polygon um about uh homestuck and uh giving uh hussey giving their kind of final line about like having disassociated themselves from homestuck that's actually the other thing to say is that like Homestuck ends. We know how it ends. It's all predetermined. Homestuck ends uh, historically uh, in a situation where Andrew Hussey steps back from the property entirely, divests themselves from it uh, in the sense that like what pumpkin uh, uh, releases a statement saying Hussey is not going to be involved in any sort of like further Homestuck uh, uh, materials. Mm -hmm. So. And then uh, uh, Hussey says in this interview with Anna Diaz at Polygon, you can look this up, uh, that the experience of creating Homestuck was creating a cult Mm -hmm. by accident. Uh, And fandom uh, uh, for Hussey in that interview ends up being positioned as more or less equivalent in all respects to a cult. There's not a a lot of drill down there as to like, you know, is there is there like an inflection point or anything? They're they're made uh, very uh equivalent in the way that that article like um is written in the way that hussy is kind of like laying out uh their experiences um so uh my question then as you know again someone who's kind of outside of all this is like well is there something in the theory of authorship that is making this difficult like uh if, if homestuck goes bad if there is something that happens uh, where the creator has to, for like their own safety and sanity, step back from all this stuff and just sort of like sever entirely. Um, where are the pieces that are making that happen? Where, like, what what facilitated or cultivated, uh, uh, you know, interactions such that we eventually end up in this point? Um, and I think. Uh, the way that Homestuck is trying to incorporate its own fandom into the way that it tells its story is a part of that. And that's not to say that it's a bad thing that Homestuck did this, but mm-hmm. more like uh, you could do all sorts of things if you're trying to create a, a media property that has a playful and like fun and reactive engagement with its fandom, right? You could do all sorts of things. But what are the things that you do that potentially end up and uh, putting you in a very messy position. Yeah, I, I, to put it a different way, I, I mean, basically, what happened? Yes. <laughs> right? Like, it's not, uh, <laughs> history is not purely contingent. Mm-hmm. It's not just random things happening. Although sometimes it's random things happening, right? So is there anything that is in the method through which the uh, Homestuck is communicated, written, distributed, argumentative, you know, add any of your kind of uh, uh, descriptive action words here. Is there something in that that sets a tone in which, uh, or or a method of engagement in which, uh, you know, these things happen? Or is it just mm-hmm. random chance? 
But right, you you know, this isn't uh this didn't happen with Yogi Bear. Mhm. You know, he was hanging out in uh in <laughs> Jelly <laughs> Jellystone. <laughs> Jellystone. He was hanging out in Jellystone and the fan community, you know, uh the creator of Yogi Bear, I don't believe ever said I've created a cult and I regret it. Mhm. Um, and so I think we do have to ask questions about like, what's going on here that creates that? Mm -hmm. And is this just a particular creator and their own, uh, interactions that make it happen? Or is there something else going on? Right. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I don't have any answers to that so far because we are only halfway through reading this comic. (laughs) And, uh, as, as we are also only halfway through reading the comic, I'm only halfway through making my point because in a typical Homestuck move, now that we've gone full meta, I'm going to fall back into the story itself and talk about, uh, what you were saying about, uh, you know, these purely arbitrary imaginative constrictions, um, that the comic loves to set out. And like, I understand that this is part of the fun. You know, I, when I say that, I think it's absolutely absurd that we're now going to get a story about John's grandma, uh, that's not me saying again that that's bad. It's more like, what a constraint. Like, I think like this is part of my, uh, you know, historical response as a reader and as someone who t- tries to write stories himself, right? Is I'm just like, what a constraint to put yourself under <laughs> to be right. like, now I'm going to talk about John's grandma. Um, time for that. When story. in doubt, perhaps you should just shoosh, shoosh. <laughs> uh, so I'm also so I, I'm thinking about that, like what's going to like what could possibly uh, uh, Hussey has been escalating stuff so much like what could possibly happen in Act Six? And also uh, the the Lord English stuff has also been escalating in a way that I think is really interesting. And so <clears throat> I say something in the thread about how like, uh, you know, Lord English has been uh, uh, or is going to be unleashed, presumably at the end of Act Five. Right. Like was that seems to be what everything is building toward um and presumably then like the end game of this comic is dealing with lord english in some way um and i made in the in a post i said something incidentally about lord english being more destructive than doc scratch i can't remember exactly what i said um but someone comes in and responds to me and says uh that well why are you assuming that uh lord english would be more destructive than doc scratch because uh lord english is sanctioned by paradox space that's a thing that uh doc scratch mm-hmm. told us by the way right sanctioned meaning uh you know allowed but of course sanctioned as a word is an auto antonym it means both itself and its opposite so it means both allowed and punished I do like that we have uh, created a podcast in which you can win forum arguments from <laughs> 15 years ago, <laughs> and you can get the final word. <laughs> but but, but uh, continue, yeah. the, uh, although Antony. Well, I guess you said, well, I already got the I already got the final word here, as I'm going to get to. But this person says, you know, like, well, why do you assume that Lord English is bad? Like, maybe yeah. maybe Lord English is just like the personification of entropy. Right. As a natural kind of like uh, aspect of of uh, the world, because we know that Lord English uh, goes through like picks apart or like destroys dead or ended sessions or something. Right. There's uh, everything is so vague that people are just theorizing constantly. But one of the one of the kind of like lines of theorization around Lord English is like, oh, what if he's like a cleanup process? Right. A kind of natural cleanup process of the game. Um mm-hmm. And so I have, so I say something like, oh, I, 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 about Lord English being destructive and like, you know, 
presumably the end game is going to be about taking care of or addressing in some way Lord English. And this other person says, well, what if he's entropy? And entropy is perfectly natural. And I respond, uh, well, I am pretty unhappy with how uh, Lord English and his cohorts treat women. And if there's a way that reality can propagate and decline infinitively uh, without enslaving and degrading women across time and space, then I would be all for it. Wow. You showed them. Yeah. I like that they uh, said it in a, in a like a goofy voice. Uh-huh. It was really cool of them to really lay <laughs> me up like that. <laughs> they said it in that in that way too. Uh-huh. It just made them sound so so wrong. Yeah, uh, inherently, it's wild. Uh, but I, I I noticed this post for myself because I was like, oh yeah, like this is this is like a, a line of continuity between Michael now and Michael, uh, uh, you know, ten or eleven years ago, um, mm-hmm. which is like there are people. Uh, who you will deal with in talking about stories who will say, well, like, why are you objecting to that? Because that's right. just that's just the way the story works. But my point here is that it's all made up. And if the end game of this story is that, like, yeah, entropy is a natural part of life. Everything is created and destroyed. And also, as a part of that, women are going to get enslaved, right? And, and like, groomed explicitly as, gra- as Doc Scratch's word. Um, right. Groomed uh, to, to, to take part in this process. Like, there is a representational decision being made uh, that is then trying to naturally itself by saying like and this is just like how the metaphysics of this story work and you can't really object to it and my response is like actually you can object to anything uh if you have enough time to post about it or record a podcast (laughs) and you can always be right (laughs) (laughs) On on a long enough timeline you can always be right about something but yeah no absolutely right like uh any time that the story itself, and this is not just the story, but any story, right? Any time a story tells you that something can't be another way, you have to ask yourself, for what reasons, mm-hmm. right? And if it's just the way that the story, it's like there are costs and benefits that come with that at the level of reception, mm-hmm. right? Like, uh, because at the end of the day, you know, this is this is the big kind of metaphysical difference between the way that Hussey talks about the story versus the way that you and I engage with the story and whether or not this is real or not. Right. You know, whether this is like a Hussey character kind of talking or whatever is, is kind of beside the point, because it's very clear that the story does move through this kind of metaphysical mechanism, which is like. Uh, these are all independent kind of uh, eternal entities that have particular instantiations. Mm-hmm. And there are storytelling mechanisms that come with that that support that. Mm-hmm. You know, that that uh, there are knock-on effects from, from that set of assumptions about how narrative works. And, you know, for us, for anyone who is thinking kind of historically, for anyone who's thinking, you know, in terms of... Uh, you know, what we might call political economy on one hand or in a different heuristic or in a different way of thinking about it, what we might call epistemes, you know, mm-hmm, for Foucauldians mm-hmm, or what mm-hmm. we might call the epoch if we are Heideggerians, which I am not, but it's just to give you another term for thinking about this, right? Uh, these are all different words for thinking about the historical context in which something appears. And every single historical context, every single narrative mode naturalizes itself within its historical context. Mm-hmm. You know, the novel emerges in a moment that makes it appear as if the novel is the next logical thing to appear in the history of media. Uh, film operates the same way. Radio operates the same way. VR operates the same way. Think about every single moment uh, that that you're engaging or hearing about, particularly the metaverse right mm-hmm. now, 
right? Uh, the number of times I've heard people say, and you know, I, I'll say it very directly, uh, there for a while in the podcast, limited resources, Marshall Sutcliffe, while reading their sponsorship from like a crypto company at the beginning of that, has said, well, if you're thinking about working through your, you know, uh, with your crypto assets or your kind of metaverse assets, you know, and that's the way things are going now, uh, then you might want to blah, 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 work with whatever company that they're sponsored by. Uh, that's a set of naturalization processes. Mm -hmm. So a, a thing that is emergent in the world suggesting that it is inherently a property of the world, mm -hmm. that these things are just uh, emergent and therefore now natural and a part of our kind of ecosystem when they are artificial, like all things are, uh, and are uh, they have to reground themselves. You know, they have to tell you, they have to explain to you that this is how the world works and these are a part of the world and that we can't do anything about it or can't think through them more robustly. Obviously, I think that the political repercussions and the, and the uh, real world repercussions of the metaverse are quite different than like the narrative uh, devices of a webcomic. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, that process of naturalization, you know, to use the term that you used, of saying that this is the way the world is now, and then therefore we have to operate within it, it carries a lot of context with it, mm -hmm. and that happens in a lot of different ways. Um, again, go back to our conversation about the Iraq War. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's it's not to belabor this point, but it's a thing that really matters to us, I think. Well, it really matters to us, and like one of the reasons I think Homestuck is so compelling to me is that this is the move of the primary villain is to constantly yeah. naturalize himself, to literally just be like, well, I was already here. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's fascinating. Right? Uh, that, that is perhaps the most interesting part of the comic. And there are a lot of things I find interesting about this comic. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. The, the, that it is uh, a, a historical transformation that is telling it you that it is not historical whatsoever, mm -hmm. that it is eternal. Uh, that yeah, that's fascinating. That the end was already predetermined. Yes. Speaking of, uh, I want to show you some uh, Lord English speculative designs. So for a long time, it was whispered in the fandom that Lord English was going to have rapidly alternating pool ball eyes, and this was uh -huh. this was uh, something specifically that was shouted out in one of the Hussy interludes, or shouted out and or determined. Um, <clears throat> But the 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 pool ball eyes was one thing uh, that wasn't confirmed canon, though. So we get some speculative designs uh, that I just want to drop in here again. This will all be on a uh, uh, homestuck made this fan art uh, This is from an artist named Guseri. Uh, who pictures Lord English as this like tall, stately uh, figure with like a, a multicolored flame for a head. There's something really fascinating to me about like the Tumblr style of this era, because mm -hmm. uh, this is a way that a lot of, I mean, just the fan art style, I guess I shouldn't call it the Tumblr style, because I'm sure it was other places. It's just a place that I really associate with Tumblr, this kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like whatever the hero poses are in, in the comic right now. It's very yeah. much of that style, these like doctor who looking ass designs yeah you know like everyone's like thin and is wearing like a nicely tailored costume of some sort um whereas like the as presented every character in homestuck 
is like a complete fucking goblin, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like they are like everyone's like hanging out at home, and like their only uh, social connection is on the internet, and they're like jamming on Doritos all the time, and that's definitely how I was uh-huh. at that time period, right? Especially of that age, right? But like when they process through the the fandom, you know, universe, like everyone is live and thin and well dressed and like cool, <laughs> and I don't think anyone in Homestuck is cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, that's okay. I, I'm not, it's not a put down, but like, I just don't, in my mind, when I'm thinking of them as like human beings, they don't look like they're <laughs> like artistic and cool and fun. They look like, you know, goblin people. <laughs> yeah. So we get all these like speculative Lord Englishes. I sent you the, the Gusseri one. Yeah, they're all cool. Yeah, there's, they, none of them should look this cool. Yeah, there's one by uh, Hyo Ryu, which is just like the, the, uh, the Cairo overcoat, like floating on its own with kind of like a, a shadowy entity inside of it. One of them is like this sort of grasshoppery looking dude with a top hat and pool ball eyes. Then there's one by uh, Naki Stilts, which is a uh, anime boy with spiky hair and glasses and like giant flashing Sephiroth wings and a big old sword. Um, cool. This is this is what people are thinking, you know, like, ah, Lord English, Lord English could look like this. Uh, and I just wanted to read uh, uh, just... A, a little list that I made mm-hmm. for your delight and the delight uh, and edification of all listeners of just collected Lord English uh, uh, speculation, uh, suppositions, jokes. Got it. Uh, and I'm just going to mix it all up. I'm going to make no distinctions here. I'll be by childlike empress. Um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I'm not going to bother like setting out jokes from sincere speculation because that's not the way this comic works. There are, in fact, literally, there is a post that I made during this reading as a joke that shows up as, uh, basically true in the book, uh, print commentary. Like I make a, I make an observation or a call or a description about a thing. And then later on, Andrew Hussey, uh, and I'm doing it as a joke. Cause I think in the time, like, oh man, this would be such a like absurdly silly and bad idea. And then in the reader comment or in the commentary on the book, Andrew Hussey just like repeats what I said. Now, I don't mean that like specifically like Andrew Hussey read my post and then repeated it, but like takes the idea that I thought was a joke and presents it as like sincere author commentary. That's my, uh, like, uh, penthouse letters, yeah. uh, thing. Andrew Hussey read my post. <laughs> Andrew Hussey read my shit post and was like, this will make a good comment in the print book. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, here, here's, uh, some, some, uh, knowledge for you. <clears throat> Lord English is the reader, Andrew Hussey, a character we've seen before, a character we've never seen before. A player of the game who has enabled God mode. Not real. The form of absence itself. Gigius from Earthbound. Eddie Morton. A giant heron. Skipper Plumthroat. Mobster Kingpin from Problem Sleuth. Mr. Rossetti from Animal Crossing. A red herring, figurative. A red herring, literal. Richard Garriott. An Exile, WV specifically, The Ben Stiller Bust from Problem Sleuth, Jade's Grandson, A Really Big Lil Cal Named Big Cal, Nepeta, Jade, Doc Scratch, The Demiurge, Vriska, 
Gamzee, Rose, Spade Slick, Jack Noir, a version we've seen already, Jack Noir, a version we've not seen already, several <laughs> characters from the comic somehow combined together into one super character, Sweet Bro and Hella Jeff standing on each other's shoulders. Oh, I wish it was any of those. Those are good. <laughs> I can I can I make my prediction? Sure. It's John somehow. <laughs> I mean, uh this Naki Stilts uh art might agree with you because that looks like that looks like a super powered Sephiroth John. It does. Yeah. Uh great. Okay, well is there anything else in this uh this little episode? Hey here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. Has it already been established be- before this reading that Gamesy can like make shit appear in the universe outside of his timeline or whatever? Nope. That he can just invent things that appear? Yep, that's a new thing that just starts happening. That's evil clown power for you, baby. And also, it's Got it. the constant narrative move of Homestuck of like, oh, this character's a doing doing a thing now, and uh, they were always capable of doing it. They just didn't need a reason to do it until this moment, by the way. Right. 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 <laughs> okay. That may- okay. I just want to make sure that I didn't. Uh, I didn't miss anything, and I didn't. So, um, some other important things to notice or like to mention here is that uh, uh, I mentioned that uh, there, there's like a hussy steps away eventually from Homestuck. Well, here mm-hmm. in this moment, uh, we're seeing kind of the 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 home. You asked, I think, the previous part episode is this kind of like the high point of Homestuck ex- excitement, mm-hmm. and uh, this is the point when we're really starting to reach that. So. Uh, there are lots of people reading this thing. Uh, uh, the Etsy store closes because there's just like too much demand on the Etsy store that I mentioned to like fulfill orders. And, Mm -hmm. um, uh, Andrew Hussey's, uh, girlfriend who has been in charge of these things, uh, at this point, I, I, some people have, uh, written in to like, uh, clue me in about some of this stuff. And like, I've actually specifically chosen not to talk about it because I didn't want to make it like an ongoing saga of how this turns out because I think it's actually extremely, you know, bad. Um, and it's unfortunate, but like, uh, Andrew Hussey had a girlfriend who was like uh, doing some of the kind of like business operations for Homestuck at this point. Um, and it is during this specific section of reading, uh, because she was posting in the, uh, something awful thread that she comes in and talks about how she's not going to like interact with anyone in the thread anymore because, uh, she and Hussey both are being stalked like constantly. Mm. Um, and like, I think that is like, this is why I just wanted to reserve it for this like quick incision of being like, this is what it is like to be on this end of the internet. Right. Um, yeah. It's not fun. It's not good. Uh, and it makes you like, you know, sever from things that m- might have uh, alternatively been, you know, like a, a fun endeavor. Um, also, uh, during this section of reading, Otakon uh, 2011 happens, uh, which is an anime and manga convention uh, that at this point uh, was happening, I think, in Baltimore. And there are so many Homestuck cosplayers that it fills up like an entire room. And this is the first moment that uh, I can remember and that people in the thread are talking about like Homestuck at a convention really blowing up. Uh, And I sent you actually, Cameron, some videos uh, from this particular convention of like people posing for group shots. We've got people like like, you know, organizing these things. Um, I found a few of these still on Tumblr. Um, someone I want to shout out actually is uh, uh, a range touch community member, Andy, 
uh, in the Discord who has made a, a little application called the Homestuck Tumblr Explorer uh, that allows you to look at a uh, Homestuck tagged posts uh, in time with the very show that you are now listening to. So every time there is a new episode of this show that goes live, the Homestuck Tumblr Explorer unlocks additional posts uh, from that time frame uh, moving forward in, in sync with us. Um, and I'm going to probably pass you the link to that, Cameron, so you can put it in the show notes so people can check that out. I checked with Andy to make sure that this wasn't going to like ruin a hosting situation or something and uh andy mm -hmm. told me that it, it should work out um so uh that exists like uh all sorts of uh memories from this it still exist on tumblr uh and you cameron had a real reaction to seeing all of this cosplay i felt like it was a unique violence being done to me <laughs> having to watch the video <laughs> well i so i didn't people... care for it at all People are going to think, here's here's a fun moment that you get to listen to live on air, listeners, um, by which I mean dead on air, because this is all, of course, pre-recorded. Silencio, no hay banda. Um, but uh, you say I, I you felt like you had violence being done to you by seeing that video of all of these like wonderful, happy children cosplaying, which let me be yeah, clear. They're having a great time. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's very beautiful. But you listening, you may know something else about uh, this particular convention in the fall of 2011 in a video that happened, um, which I just I got to talk about it, because if I don't, people are going to be like, hey, why didn't you talk about this? Some people think I've already showed it to you. I'm not going to show it to you. I don't want to look for it again. I've already seen it. Uh, I'm, of course, talking about the bucket video. Did someone get hit with a bucket? Oh, God, I wish. Oh. So you will recall, Cameron. Oh, no, 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 <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. I'm putting it together and I don't, I don't even want to think about it. No, no. <laughs> uh, you will recall uh, that on Alternia, uh, the trolls use buckets shoosh, as part of shoosh, their reproductive shoosh, shoosh, process, shoosh, shoosh. which means that there is a video of like two cosplaying teenagers in like a Denny's or something uh, throwing up in a bucket and they post it to Tumblr and it goes like, oh, okay. Whew, incredibly viral. Uh, yeah, you can throw up. I didn't think they were throwing up in the bucket. <laughs> I thought something else was happening in the bucket. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's uh Compared to what I thought you were going to tell me about slash were telling me about, that's like the most sweet summer child innocence <laughs> that I've ever imagined. It really, it really is the kind of thing where if you, uh, if you set your golf post far enough, anything looks like, <laughs> you know, could look fine. Who? Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. They can throw them in a bucket all they want. Yeah. That sounds cool. That sounds fine. Yeah. So uh, like, that just sounds like jackass. That's okay. It is. It's kind of like yeah. It's like cosplay jackass. Because like one of the jokes in the fandom is that like the you know people are always like hussy like on forum spring. Uh, you know what do the, what do the buckets do? And hussy won't mm. uh respond because you know this is it's like clearly kind of like a thing thrown in there to be a joke. And it's much funnier if you just know that they have to use buckets for something, right? Like you, you fill in the rest with your mind. That's how, that's how jokes work. Um, yeah. uh, but it becomes <laughs> knock, knock who's there. No one knows <laughs> the ultimate joke. It becomes a uh, kind of a, a joke in uh, fandom that like how trolls reproduce is like, they don't have like, you know, penetrative sex or anything. They just like kiss and then they both puke in the bucket and that's how they deposit their uh, genetic material. 
So there's this video of these kids like uh, making themselves vomit into a bucket again in like public. It's like in a Denny's or something. Uh, it's always in a Denny's. Yeah, and we've had an experience in a Denny's. Yeah, we did. We did, didn't we? Wait, was that no? That was an IHOP where we oh, had an experience. That was in an IHOP. IHOP. Oh, that, where I got into a mild confrontation with a guy. That man was gonna give us the hookup for all sorts of things. That's true. A guy tried to, uh, this is a little bonus content if you've made it to the end of this episode, a guy tried to sell Michael and I weed and or other stuff yeah. in a uh, in in an IHOP, but that only happened after I had a productive confrontation with him. Uh-huh. Uh, you, like, earned his respect. I sp- <laughs> yes, where we had to, like, mutually disrespect one another, and I thought maybe we were going to get into a physical fight. Uh-huh. Uh, it was really indeterminate what the vibe was, and then I, I think we uh, resolved that, but that did happen. Yeah. This is this was not a thing that we were like setting out to do. To be clear, it was like two o'clock in the morning, and we were looking for dinner, um, right? <laughs> because we'd been at the yeah, opera well, I did, for I hours. I didn't go looking for a fight, but I was prepared to <laughs> look. I've been in an IHOP after midnight. Stuff happens. Yeah. You gotta be ready. For it, it is true. We knew that going in, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> but but yeah. So people are vomiting. Yeah. <laughs> so in, the, a, in a bucket. This becomes one of those big flashpoints. It's like uh, uh, the a, cl- a good analog for this is a couple years later, we get like the Rick and Morty fans who go to McDonald's and then like yell at the service workers there when they don't have the friggin Szechuan sauce or what have you. Right. Um, they get on the counter, uh-huh. they whoop, whoop, whoop on the floor and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's what we talked about last time is kind of like the the movement of like young people who feel invincible in their love for a thing. Uh, and I guess their youth also like doing, uh, inadvisable things in public for, for the bit, for the joke, for the gag. And this becomes one of those oh, moments, yeah. uh, and I'm sure you've experienced them if you've ever been in any sort of fandom where it's like, we need, we as the fandom need to come together and like condemn this behavior. So people don't think it's a, like, so, cause it reflects badly on all of us. And, mm-hmm. uh, I don't, I mean, yeah, I guess, uh, I'm just, I'm mentioning this because this is that moment for Homestuck where it's like, uh, oh, like the kids are puking in public now. Um, we need to maybe like <laughs> go and take to Tumblr and, uh, reblog this and then make our own posts saying, uh, as a, as a, you know, true Homestuck, this behavior does not represent me. Yeah, I've been hit by a car three separate times as a youth due to dicking around in this exact kind of way. <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, there's no and much like the cosplay video that, that you showed me. Right. I, I found that so distressing, not because of like, don't do anything bad. They're having a good time. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not that I just find I, I've talked about this before. I find cosplay like distressing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't like live performance. I don't like people pretending to be something they're not in the kind of over effusiveness of you know basically anyone who's like heavily invested in a fandom combined with the cosplay performance makes me deeply uncomfortable in a way that i can't resolve Mm -hmm. right you know it's not i I, oh i actually said this to the person at the opera colorado and she was like we gotta dig into that what's (laughs) what's up what's going i was like i don't know i don't have anything to to you know i don't have anywhere to go with that it's just a, a fact uh i've never the most uncomfortable well not the most uncomfortable probably pretty close top 10 most uncomfortable moments in my life is when a Joker cosplayer who was talking to me wouldn't leave me alone and would not stop acting like the Batman, the animated series Joker. And that's the closest I've ever gotten to like, who famously wouldn't stop talking to you. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, Yeah. we all know that that happens in uh, season six. (laughs) Uh, he he kept talking to me, Uh uh, 
But uh, yeah, that's the closest I've ever gotten to like hitting someone unprovoked. And I guess I was provoked, but that I got very close to like, I need you to physically remove yourself away from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, I'm going to freak out. It, it really, really, really got to me. But yeah, it's a quite interesting video. I guess that's probably going to go up on the Tumblr. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll, I'll link it uh, definitely. People, it is it is fascinating. Like as an artifact. Yeah. To be like, clear, it's a walkthrough, not the puke video. I'm not going to share the puke video with you. <laughs> yeah. This is just a walkthrough of of the costume room. <laughs> Well, well, it's that, and it's like, and uh, now, and there's like an MC kind of doing stuff, but it's like, all right, now it's like all the Daves, uh-huh. and it's like 40 Daves come up, and it's like, and now it's the trolls, one of each, yep. and they all like come up. It's like a really, I, <laughs> the fact that you have to create an organizational method to get it all going on, that says something. Now, I have a question for you. I, I have a statement and a question. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask the question first. Uh, this is This is my hussy and rhetorical move. Is this when the reason I was asking about the bucket is that I am aware of the like people throwing buckets mm-hmm. at at you know the rumor of it mm-hmm. and you know there's this interesting thing that happens around like fandoms and particularly con fandoms where it's like uh, rumors travel as if they are true yes. so I'm thinking here about like the um, uh, people have been injured by being unprovoked hit with a paddle. Mm-hmm. People have been mortally wounded by that. And I don't know, maybe that's happened, maybe it isn't. But that travels as this kind of like statement of rumor and fact. And it, it certainly travels among younger people, right? Of like, oh my God, did you hear about? And and these are ways of signaling like in-group and out-group stuff, right? Like, it's like, I'm part uh-huh. of the fandom mm-hmm. and I'm aware of these things and blah, blah, blah. Uh, is, now, at this point in like 2011, have the rumors stories of people having buckets thrown at them and and injured has that started yet Uh, if they've started they're not being talked about in the essay thread and they're not showing up for me through the tumblr explorer um that said i'm not uh focusing too much on the tumblr explorer if only because as i've i've said before um that that's not my aim here. I have a fairly like uh, delimited set of things that I want to look at, and I want to look at Tumblr mostly just to take take the temperature of things. Uh, but I I know what you're talking about, and I know we're eventually going to get there. But as far as like when are these when do these stories start coming out of the fandom? Not quite yet, I guess. Um, maybe maybe we're all just like too too high on Homestuck uh, at this moment. Uh, like, you know, all coming together for the the shout of great dismay as on September 6th, Hussey's like, all right, going to pu- pause the comic for two months so I can work on the end of Act 5 animation. And you all get to wait for that. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's the here's the statement. OK. Kind of wild that this whole thing's in like a weird homophobic joke. Yeah. The 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 snap to the Snope forty forty eighty two Snope yes fuck the uh the the sweet bro and hella Jeff uh yeah thing. yeah I mean yeah that's another thing where like Homestuck will really justify itself right because uh the the that's a line from a sweet bro and hella Jeff comic which of right. course is ironically made you can't like you know sweet bro and hella Jeff also makes jokes about immigrants for example um. Right. Uh, and it's another example of the the way that uh, the heteroglossia allows you to uh, make the joke, but also like critique the joke and therefore seem as if you're not really making the joke or like you don't have to take responsibility for the joke. Um, yeah. I, All right. 
Yeah, so we we end then on September 6th, which is also the day, or maybe it's the day after, by the way, that the Something Awful thread gets locked. Uh, huh. because, uh, as, as the, uh, mod, I think it's Waterhall at the time, uh, comes in and says like, Hey, uh, so I've heard that Homestuck, you know, is going on hiatus or whatever, and I'm going to lock this thread because, uh, during the robo smooch, when Equius, uh, and Aradia, like the Aradia bot thing happened, uh, and then Hussey paused the comic and went to a convention for a week and then everyone started role playing. Do you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when that happened, uh, Waterhall now reveals, uh, there was a discussion among the mods about whether or not to ban Homestuck from the Something Awful forums. Wow. Uh, totally, like, alternate timeline. Yes. So Waterhall comes in and says, like, I'm locking this thread until Homestuck starts updating again, because last time we o- you all almost got banned. <laughs> for your own good. Yep. Uh, cool. Uh, luckily, you will not be banned from listening to this show. Uh, and next time, you're just gonna you're gonna read just a little bit. You don't have to read too much next time because we're going to end Act Five. And I would like you to go up to page four thousand one hundred and twelve. <laughs>